eventually, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, sorry for the delay. We've had all kinds of problems going on. But meanwhile, here we go. Welcome, Andrew Collins, finally. And uh, it's great to see you again. <laughs> so Andrew has uh, recently brought out a new book. Where are we? And uh, we'll be discussing that quite a lot today. I'm not going to do any other bio intro on you. I think everybody knows who you are. So um, we'll just jump right into some some history. So what did you start start your amazing career doing? Uh, investigating UFOs, I think it's the honest answer. Um, how, long, how long ago I mean, was that? It doesn't really matter. But, um, I mean, I... I mean, I'm older than I seem, actually. Uh, back in the mid-1970s, um, I started investigating UFOs and, you know, interviewing people that had actually seen this stuff. And obviously most of the cases could be put down to something mundane. However, uh, those cases which seem to be truly genuine um, seem to have unique qualities about them. The people that saw them were very often psychic in nature. Um, they'd often had things like astral projection experiences. They've seen ghosts. They've experienced poltergeist. Alert. Um, and Updates available. <laughs> Sorry. It's one of those days, Andrew. <laughs> we're haunted. Uh, and uh, basically, you know, I couldn't understand this. I couldn't understand why people that were seeing genuine UFOs, you know, had to be psychic basically it wasn't the case all the time but it was certainly very very uh, prevalent and the other thing was that a lot of people that were seeing ufos at close quarters um seemed to be able to interact with them in the sense that the objects would sort of go through the sky whether they were close or whether they were far away and the people would focus their mind on them observe them and they would stop or change direction change course almost as if they were responding to the mind of the people and again i just thought these people that are seeing these things are just mad i mean you know they're obviously just making it up and and that's it but i continued to investigate uh, ufos which by the way at the time i thought were uh, nuts and bolts spacecraft um the smaller ones were scout craft the larger ones were motherships and the tiny ones were probes sent out by these these objects, these metallic objects that were up there in the sky. And um, as far as the aliens are concerned, I mean, they were flesh and blood. They came from another planet. They came from another star system. And they had some interest uh, in us down here. But as I went on, and I also started reading pulp paperbacks by the likes of John Keel and Jacques Vallée, Mm -hmm. uh, which suggested that the phenomena that we were dealing with is something that had been around for uh, thousands of years, not just, you know, a few decades. You know, made me start thinking that we're looking at UFOs the wrong way um, and that, you know, that, that, that this could be something else, that there's an intelligence involved, there's no question about that, but that it could be something beyond simply being extraterrestrials coming here from another planet i didn't know what i had no idea at all and so i then started working with um people who had had abductions and many of them believed that they could still get in touch with the intelligences that had abducted them 
So we did have hypnosis. A voice would come through them claiming to be the intelligence. And they would say things. They would say stuff about the propulsion systems of the, the, the craft, about what they were doing here and what it was like being inside a, a UFO. And, I mean, it was uncheckable stuff. I mean, some of it was very interesting because it seemed to be future technology information. But beyond that, um, we would say, well, look, you know, can't you appear somewhere where, where, where we can be? And on one occasion, I was working with a guy called Barry King who'd had his own experiences. And this voice that claimed to be um, something called the Merak, um, a, you know, an alien intelligence from, from the, the planet uh, Merak, oh, sorry, a, a planet in the system of Merak, which is in Ursa Major, um, said two weeks time, you know, I said, what, what? So we will appear to you in exactly two weeks time. I said, great. I said, that's, that's really nice. Where? Stambod? I said, where? Where? Stambod. I said, never heard of it. And, and, and after about three takes, it said, I, I realized it was saying Stamford. And Stamford, oh. if I remember rightly, is, uh, is, I think, is it in Northamptonshire, if I remember rightly? I mean, I lived in Essex, and um, so it was saying that in two weeks' time, they would appear. I mean, you know, you'd have a UFO sighting. Um, now, more information came through in the, in the following days, and I told this whole UFO group, the Nottingham UFO group, that this event was going to happen. And when we actually came to the day, we drove up there. It was myself, uh, Barry King. Uh, and a few others and we got there and there was this whole crowd of people just just waiting you know sort of with their binoculars or whatever for this event to occur which was going to be at 10 o'clock in the evening because that was exactly 14 days after this message had come through and we get to 10 o'clock and nothing happens not a thing and so we go back in the car and Barry King goes into a trance and the Merak come through and they say you know, um, you will see that how our word has been true. Yeah, we were not able to appear here because of the forces of the earth was the actual term that was used. And, you know, but you'll see that our word is true. I said, oh, well, whatever. And so anyway, I got home that night and my, my mum, I'm still living with my parents. Um, you said, oh, my God, you've been getting all these calls about these UFO sightings. And I looked into them. They'd all started to appear at 10 o'clock at night. And what became apparent is that across the entire country that night at 10 o'clock was all of these UFO sightings. And it, there was a big double page spread in the Daily Mail the next day. But here's the interesting thing is that almost all of those sightings could be put down to a meteor that was breaking up in the sky or something like this. Almost all of them. Having said that, some of them were clearly not. Some of them were objects that were simply not going to be explained. Now, that's basically it. But the strange thing is, is how does all this work? I mean, why why were we told to go to that spot at that time? Why why did we not see something? But why was it that exactly at that time all of these events occurred all over the UK, most of which could be put down to, you know, to meteors, but there were some genuine sightings as well it's like barry king's mind was picking up on something it was coming through as these intelligences but there's something wrong 
there was something wrong about all of this. It wasn't accurate enough. Right. And it was incidents like this that made me start to realise that, you know, maybe, maybe we're never going to get any answers and I should just get out of this subject completely. So I did. But then that was in 1978. Um, 1979, my life was occupied by the magazine Strange Phenomena and psychic questing activities of finding green stones and all the rest of it, which is in books like The Seventh Sword or my colleague Graham Phillips' book, The Greenstone. Right. But then in 1982, when I uh, was once again living back in Essex, having been really disillusioned by UFOs, I read a book that changed everything, and that was Earthlights by Paul Devereaux. He was at the time the editor of um, the Lay Hunter magazine. He's gone on to become a scientific writer. He he does a, a, a scholarly journal now called Time and Space, I think, or whatever it is, Time and whatever. Um, and Time of Mind, that's it. And this book basically said, look, UFOs are real, but that for the most part they are generated by the Earth and that – they are manifestations of what we would call plasma, basically, and that these objects can appear in any size, any shape, and they can have sentience. They can respond to human interaction, uh, but they appear mostly where the, uh, the geology is very intense and uh, has stuff like um, fault lines, tectonic plates coming together, certain types of mineral ore, um, certain types of, of crystals like um, quartz, tourmaline, uh, that generate what's known as electrons. These, these are these tiny particles called electrons, create these bursts of electrons that create this environment. And under some circumstances, these electrons congeal together and become incredibly excited and produce these objects of light, basically these plasma objects. Now, this doesn't sound very exciting, but these plasma objects I started to realise are themselves simply the vehicles by which an intelligence is able to, uh, to, to manifest and occupy for a limited period of time. And that these intelligences are coming from somewhere else. And in other words, that the plasma objects themselves are not intelligent, but something is manifesting in them using the planet the plasma to manifest and there was a physicist by the name of David Bowen, American physicist who came to Britain, spent much of his time here. He did a lot of work with plasma and plasma phys physics and we can talk about plasma separately in a minute and what he came to realize is that plasma acts as if it's alive he and he came to the conclusion that it did it and it was occupied by what he called a proto-intelligence that could manifest from a deeper level of existence he called the implicate order and he felt that this was the 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 the, the stuff that created order within the physical universe itself but it was an intelligence and it helped evolution that was his view of looking at everything but I've taken it uh, on to, you know, the, the nth degree from this in books like Light Quest, Alien Energy. Uh, and, of course, all of it has culminated with this new book, uh, which is Origins of the Gods, which I've co-authored with um, Greg Little, somebody who I've, I've 
you know, um, had this 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 rapport with and friendship relating to what we feel UFOs and aliens actually are and how they relate to things like cryptids and Mothman and John Keel-like phenomena for the last 20 years. Um, and this is this book's the culmination of all of that. But let's stress here that we're not saying that all UFOs are something to do with plasma. I mean, Carl Sagan in 1963 wrote a paper where he concluded that the Earth would have been visited by extraterrestrials, you know, countless times during the whole period of human evolution. And he even suggested looking in the Sumerian texts for evidence of these visitations. I mean, we cite this paper in the book and a few critics have actually said, well, hold on, you know, uh, Carl Sagan said that he, he, he wasn't into aliens and he didn't believe in them. Well, that's crap, to be honest. That's absolute crap. And I'll tell you for why, because he was told by NASA to drop this alien ship before you go any further. Otherwise, you, you know, you will not be working with us. And that's the reason that he, he dropped it and obviously used it in books like um, Contact, which obviously went on to become the, you know, the, the blockbuster that it was. But not only did he write this paper in 1963, which is already available, we quote the, the source of it here, but I spoke to uh, Chanda Wickmansey, who is, um, you know, one of the, the, the leading astrobiologists working in this field of, of extraterrestrial life up in space. And he was a very good friend of Carl Sagan. And he said that, that, that Carl, Carl Sagan would tell him, look, I had to drop the whole alien stuff, you know, if I wanted to get on in NASA. That's the reason I had to poo-poo it. I had to denigrate it in the way that my public persona has created with, all, with, with you know, TV shows, et cetera, books, et cetera, et cetera, that had to come out after that date. That's such a That's shame. That's such a shame. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so um, it takes quite nicely into your newest book with the plasma stuff. I had some questions about that. Hopefully other people will have questions too. Um, so the, from what I understood, and it goes into Skinwalker Ranch as well, right? So Skinwalker Ranch is quite famous for all of the stuff that's going on underground as well as above ground. And they have these weird things that go on above the triangle area. And so it would be interesting to find out what is actually deep down in the earth, tectonic plate wise, and what minerals grow there and what like the, the quartz. Well, and I mean, that's something I've looked into, really. Um, I mean, OK, look, there's a TV show all about Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. Um, and essentially, it, 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 in many ways, it's a reality show um, in the okay. sense that it's following the lives of the people involved. They do experiments. Uh, and I've been in touch on various occasions with the people involved, uh, including the owner, uh, about experiments and activities on the ranch. Uh, I was there in 2019. I spent a couple of days there. I spent it in the company of, of you know, most of the people that, that you know from, from the television show, but also many of the other people that were working on the ranch who had nothing to do with the actual main players, people that were, that were there working and had been there for many weeks doing this, this, that and the other. And they said, 
you know, we've seen the objects. You know, we, we've seen them either high at the sky, suddenly manifest. We've seen them low going over this mesa to the north of the ranch. And, you know, well, I say all of the people that I spoke to had no problem about the idea that weird objects were seen on the ranch. Mm -hmm. However, the, 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 the fact of stuff happening underground and it might be some kind of base and some weird stuff's going on or whatever, I, I, I can't buy that at all. I mean, the, the, I don't see any real evidence of that at all. What I can see, say is that beneath the earth, both on the ranch and beneath the, the, the mesa itself, is geology. And that geology is exactly the type of geology that is predicted to create the right environments to produce UFO phenomena. I mean, for instance, the main place where phenomena, paranormal phenomena, including UFOs, have been seen for the last 150 years is this northern mesa. And the Native American peoples called the Ute, uh, but also the, the Navajo, but particularly the Ute, um, refer to, to, to it as the path of the skinwalker, which is where obviously the name comes from. So what is a skinwalker? Well, a skinwalker in actuality, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, again, a lot of rubbish that's talked about this. But a skinwalker is the supernatural form that a Navajo um, witch and I use that term lightly, more specifically a shaman, takes when they want to do rituals. So in other words, they'll go into an altered state, they'll probably fall into a trance, and they believe that they take a supernatural form that then goes off on its own, you know, with, it, with their astral body, if you like, and does whatever it does, and often that involves curses. They're actually doing it to curse. I mean, it's not all nicey-nicey, new oh, age stuff, I promise you. Um, and one of the most familiar forms that a, um, that, that a Navajo witch will take is the wolf. And as you probably know, oversized wolves and also what's known as lichens, which is the technical and proper name for what we call dogmen, um, which is bipedal creatures with dog-like snouts, often several feet in height, you know, seven or eight feet or height are often seen on the ranch, just as they are in very many other parts of the world. And that, that, that quite clearly creatures like this, we'd probably call them cryptids today, have been seen in connection with this northern mesa for at least 150 years. And that's the reason why that mesa has become associated with skinwalkers. Um, and, yeah, I mean, quite clearly the ute, you know, I mean, they're terrified of them. I mean, they 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 won't even go on that mesa. I mean, to them, it's completely off limits because of the appearance of these creatures. Um, and how does all this come about? Well, because about 150 years ago, the Utes had, were in war. So, I mean, it wasn't you know, simply a, an us against them thing. It was quite messy. But, um, yeah, the Mormons were involved. The Navajo were involved. And the Ute conquered the local Navajo, and they actually put them in. Um, they actually put them in slavery. They actually enslaved them and sold them off. Um, and I think there's an element of guilt involved with this. And uh, what they believe is that thereafter, the Navajo witches or shamans put curses on the Ute, which is the reason why. 
the area of Skinwalker Ranch is associated with this supernatural phenomena. In other words, they see this phenomenon, think, oh my God, look, we're, we're, we're being cursed because quite clearly this phenomenon would not be there unless we were cursed. Right. Now, I, I think this is a bit of an overreaction, obviously. I mean, obviously, we can't condone any of these actions, of course. But um, I think what's going on here is that the youth are trying to justify why this phenomenon is occurring. And I mean, I don't suppose we're just talking about you know, the appearance of dogmen or oversized walls, which seems to be quite common at uh, Skinwalker Ranch. But we're probably talking about light phenomena as well and other things that would make them feel sick and ill, you know, that would make them you know, feel like th these territories were, were, were cursed or whatever it is. And, of course, this plays into all the modern-day phenomena uh, to do with the paranormal, where people are... Uh, you know, experience, you know, strange shifts of consciousness. They feel ill. They feel nauseous. Obviously, their electrical equipment spins and does weird stuff whenever they go up onto the 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 the, the mesa. So what is it about this mesa? What's, what's significant about that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there are certain places around the world, we call them vortex sites or portal locations today, where this phenomenon seems to occur more easily than anywhere else. And the geology at these sites is pretty well always the same. You know, uh, underground faulting, um, certain types of mineral, particularly quartz, et cetera, et cetera. And often tectonic plates are involved. And what you've got at the western end of that mesa is a fault. It's been registered. You can see it on U.S. geological surveys. And the actual mesa itself is made of a type of sandstone that not, not just crumbles um, due to weathering, but becomes this absolute fine fat uh, powder. So much so that, the, you know, if you're working there, you know, you've got to wear masks. I mean, you've got to wear scarves or this of it so that you don't take in all these tiny crystal shards of quartz. You know, that's what this entire mess is made of, all of these tiny quartz crystal shards. Wow. And... You know, and and there and all of all of this is exactly the right environment. Now, how does this happen? Well, what happens is that fault lines cause pressures underneath the earth, and when this happens, they put certain types of mineral um, in a thing. They, it distorts them, it bends them. Um, in particular, two types of, of mineral are important: quartz and tourmaline. Those are the two most powerful minerals that you ever need to know about. I mean, there are various others as well, but those are the most common. And what they do is when they're put under pressure, they release the electrons from the atoms that are inside them. OK, and these electrons, which are also known as negative ions, the term you, many people will have probably have heard, they they. they they take lines of least resistance within the rocks. They'll flow from one place to another, but they will find ways of breaking the surface. Uh, often this is through fissures or uh, fault lines or whatever. And once they come out into the local landscape, they basically combine with the electrostatic field, which is natural, absolutely natural anyway. It goes up and down to do with the weather, but, but they combine with that. And this creates what's known as a, 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 an electron burst, 
Um, and I mean, this is an environment of activity. And this is exactly the stuff that creates this phenomena. Exactly. You know, it's the, it's, it's, it's the matter that, that's, that comes together to allow these manifestations to take place. So, you know, bang, suddenly you've got UFOs, bang, you, you know. And, and the thing about these UFOs or these, you know, objects of light is that they become portals themselves. I mean, this is something you, you hear in connection with Skinwalker Ranch. We looked into the, the object and it looked like we were looking through to somewhere else. Well, of course they were, because these plasma objects are like gateways or doorways. You know, that, that's their nature. And the other important thing to know is that a number of different uh, studies into plasma have suggested that it contains an extra dimension of space. So, in other words, you know, the, the world that we live in has three dimensions of space and one of time. Well, plasma is different. It has four dimensions of space and one of time. And therefore, it allows it to become a step up or step down process allowing what might be conceived as higher dimensional consciousness or reality to enter into our environment, into our world. And the other important thing is that if we are dealing with higher dimensional environments, they coexist with us all the time. We can go into the, you know, the exact details of that if, if we have time. But it's suggested, particularly within a type of string theory known as M-theory, which involves the idea that there are actually 11 dimensions and that, you know, outside the physical universe, there's something called the bulk. Um, and this bulk is like the motherboard behind, behind physical existence. And that under certain circumstances, um, within the bulk, these so-called brains, B-R-A-N-E, or brain worlds, will suddenly open up and start expanding and within them will be physical matter, physical matter like the 3D space and one dimension of time that we have. And they'll gradually expand outwards and outwards and outwards to create what we call a physical universe. And we're in one of those. We're in a brain world here, but it's not the only one. There are other brain worlds, and some of these brain worlds may well touch ours, but some, it is predicted, can actually overlap our own. So Maybe only temporary, but they can overlap. Now, if that's the case, when two separate brain worlds overlap and, and plasma is involved, the plasma could act as a conduit, a gateway or doorway between those two separate brain worlds. In other words, two separate physical realities could overlap on a temporary basis. And under such circumstances, cryptids, which we call reality hoppers sometime, um, can you know quite literally hop from one physical reality into our own. And they're, they're just there. They're just seen. They don't, they don't necessarily come through a door, you know, like a, a, no, a door standing vertically. They'll just be there. They'll just suddenly manifest. And they will be there for the time period of these this overlap process taking place. But when those brain worlds, if they are shifting, when they go apart, they'll just pull, the other one will just pull back everything associated with its particular reality and we'll just, everything will go back to normal. And that could be a few minutes, could be a few hours, could be a few days, 
few weeks in, under so, some circumstances. As much as I don't want to mention it, but that sounds like a Bigfoot thing. That would make exactly. Sense. It would make Although, sense. I mean, the, the thing is that that brings the question, what are Bigfoot or what are similar cryptids, Sasquatch, Yeti, etc., etc.? Yeah. Well, there is no hard and fast answer. I mean, some of them are probably creatures that are indigenous to our world. Um, and some of them are not. Some of them are intruders. And if they are intruders, then they are going to have slightly different physical characteristics to what you know we encounter in this world and and amongst myself and, and my friends and i have to big up my good friend richard ward on this because he actually came up with this is that it seems as if you almost have two types of crisps cryptid those with shadows and those without oh. in other words you know cryptids that cast a nice shadow are quite clearly physically present right. in our world but those that don't cast a shadow clearly are not and as you'll read in various reports, various of them do not cast shadows, basically. And that tells you almost certainly that they are not of our world. Fascinating stuff. But, so do you think with the, the whole plasma thing that comes into it and it's getting affected by the tectonic plates or whatever else is going on underneath there and the tourmaline and the quartz, do you think that sort of outside interferences like from the Schumann resonance and maybe even some of the blasts that come off the sun. Well, I mean, the, the Schumann resonance is what eight hertz, isn't it? It's like this, but it's been this, uh, this frequency that's called well, not frequency, but it's like this resonance that's caused by thunderstorms, you know, going off all around the world, um, you know, constantly at different places. And because there are eight hertz. That is such a low frequency that it's carried all the way around the world. And therefore, it becomes constant. And if it becomes constant, it can be seen to be a product of the Earth itself. In other words, it's constant. It's constant in its own right. Excuse me. But, I mean, yes, it's there. Um, and I think the important thing about that is that there's some evidence that the ancients were aware of, of the human resonance. Uh, I wrote all about this in articles I did on Durrington walls and these incredibly large pits, like these drum-shaped pits that have been found to encircle this huge um, Neolithic encampment called Durrington walls. Uh, I mean, it was only discovered a couple of years ago. And I heard of it. You know, all the indications are that these pits uh, were created to create sound. Um, and if that's the case, then the only type of sound that would have been created at, at depth that would have had any meaning is an incredibly low frequency that would have gone through the earth and been carried. And as I showed, the actual size of the pits is suggestive of a knowledge of the the human resonance but it has to be pointed out that human resonance is an electromagnetic frequency whereas obviously sound itself is different yeah. so in other words eight hertz in sound is not eight hertz as an electromagnetic frequency but i have talked to, to people about this and there is a relationship between the two so but I, we're, let's not go into pedantics at the moment but there is a link but, but i mean the human resonance is there yes it may be involved with some of the, of the activity that we're, we're talking about, but I don't think it's key to understanding what's going on. Uh, I think that that is far more to do with creating the right environments, producing the right type of phenomena that then acts as a gateway into 
a higher dimensional uh, existence, a higher dimensional realms, uh, which coexist with us all the time anyway. But we're just not aware of, of them. I mean, this whole room has got multiple dimensions in it, but because they are so small and curled up, they 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 they're not operative. That nothing, you know, we would never be aware of it. And to be honest, we never are going to be aware of it. But quite clearly, outside of that, outside of our physical universe, outside of physical matter, there's something else going on that almost certainly is of a higher dimensional nature. And all of the indications are that it involves eleven dimensions, um, and that would be. Four dimensions of actual space, and bearing in mind that uh, a dimension of space ultimately is no more than, you know, full, you know, forwards and backwards, sideways, up. up. Those are the three dimensions of geometry of space. Time is obviously the, the time it takes to do it, right. and in theory, that's linear. In other words, it, it goes only goes forward. But outside of the physical universe, in the bulk. There are four dimensions of space, just like in plasma environments, as well as an extra six dimensions of space that are curled up into tiny balls, so small that you wouldn't even be aware that they're there. And they are what's referred to as compactified. And uh, they're referred to as, um, or, you know, from, from the, the work that was done, Cloudy U manifolds, so that's what they're actually called. Um, yeah, I, got, I think I talk about them briefly in the book, but I go into detail, obviously, about all of these higher dimensions and, and what they mean. And also how we might perceive any kind of consciousness or being that comes from them. I mean, the thing is that if you had a world that existed on, let's say, two dimensions and a three dimensional creature came through into their world, all they would see is just, I mean, their world is flat because right. a, a two-dimensional world would be just like paper, con right. you know, continuous paper. That's right. all they would see. Yeah. And the people living there would just be a part of that paper, if you like. They would be flat, you know, yeah, like people. And if, let's say, a ball was to penetrate its way through their world, all they would see is a, a tiny circle that would gradually open up until it reached its maximum width. And then it would close again until it came to nothing. That's all they would ever see of our world. They would only be able to interpret it in terms of two dimensions. They can never, by their nature, see anything in three dimensions. And it's the same for us. We're three-dimensional creatures of space, which means that if a four-dimensional creature manifests into our world, we wouldn't see we wouldn't see it right. We'd see something. We'd try and interpret it. Yeah. And we may say, oh, look, it looks like a spaceship or it looks like a, an alien or a grey or something like that. But ultimately, it would have a completely different form. Now, yes, of course, it would have a physical form, but we're never going to see that because we are three-dimensional creatures. And when you start looking in terms of creatures of the bulk that exist outside of that, that are 11 dimensions or perhaps even more, you have a hope in hell of trying to understand 
what they may look like. And the only thing that we can say is that if they do exist, then there is a good chance that they are having an impact upon us and upon this world and have done since the very beginning of humanity. And that is what this book is about. If these beings exist, you know, who exactly are they and how have they impact human evolution and the rise of human civilization? Well, it certainly makes sense that that whole thing that you get when you get a feeling that you're not alone or the feeling that you some that we say in England, the goose that just walked over our grave and stuff like that, that you yeah. know things just happen, but you can't put your finger on it. Yeah, so it well, exactly. Sense. I mean, you know, they could even be the explanation for what we call shadow beings, you know, yeah. or shadow people. You know, I mean, what what are they? I mean, they are just shadow forms that we can't really make out what's going on. They could be four-dimensional or multi-dimensional uh, beings that we are just glimpsing. Um, and I think that that I mean, that, you know, this this does make good sense. They're not aliens. You know, they they they're not coming in from another planet. I don't think they coexist with us. But I think what's important to remember is that if they are on a higher dimensional level, then time for them and distance in, 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 the, in the way that we conceive it would not be there because they're, able, they're going to be able to use uh, methods that are outside of what we call a local connection. In other words, you know, a direct link between here and there to go outside, go beyond that into what's known as a non-local medium to transfer information, energy, and mass. So in other words, there is a good chance that if they are manifesting here, then once they disappear, they could be the other side of the universe. So, you know, you, if you really wanted, you could say they are extraterrestrial in the sense that they're not pinned to this planet. Right. They could be anywhere. But equally, they could be at any time as well. Right. And so I think that this, this starts to become important when you think of UFOs, if they are, for the most part, and again, we're not saying that all are, but for the most part, if they are plasma constructs, that's the term we use for them. And by the way, I mean, they can be small, they can be very big, they can be really solid, they can be nebulous, they can be cloud-like, um, they can be different colours, they can, you know, uh, well, all sorts of different things. I mean, there's no nothing that, that, that sets them in, in any way. They can be invisible. Plasma can be invisible. Right. Um, but if these things are manifesting into our world, then and these, um, these intelligences are manifesting into them, then the chances are that they can interact with us. And I think that this starts to explain why, when I was investigating UFOs all the way back to the 90, in the 1970s, just by observing these objects you're forming a link you're forming a link a, 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 that connects you connects your mind yeah. with it and the objects are responding to that either sentiently or even simply because you're, you're connecting with them and this takes us into the realm of quantum physics because as we know you know there is a theory within uh, physics that and, and it's been proved uh, through experiments that if we observe an experiment that's going on on a, uh, a, a subatomic level 
then we will affect the results simply by observation. And if that's the case, then surely the same thing is happening when we are thinking about when we are seeing a UFO. We are affecting the results. We are connecting with it and we are making it do something different than if we had not observed it ourselves. So pure observation of an object brings in something that I refer to in the book as human consciousness interaction, which right. is better than the simple idea of, um, of, of observation itself. It's human consciousness interaction. And that is such an important element within this subject that people have just not got onto. Because although we do have places all over the globe, vortex sites, portal locations, where this phenomena more easily occurs, Skinwalker Ranch, various places in this country, in Britain, like Bempton up in uh, Yorkshire, Warminster in Wiltshire, uh, Alton Barnes and Avebury, where all the crop circles appear in, uh, in the same county of Wiltshire. I mean, all of these places are places where you would expect to encounter <coughs> UFOs and other strange phenomena. So if you go there, in your mind already, you think there's a very good chance that something weird will happen whilst I'm down there. Now, if you go and stand in your local Walmart or your local uh, Tesco car park, would you think the same thing is, go is going to happen? Would you think that you're about to see a UFO or have some kind of paranormal experience? No. Unless, for some reason, over the years, it's a tradition has built up that if you stand in that car park, something weird will happen. Yeah. And, You're opening and all of this is to do with human consciousness interaction. And I think that that's 50% of why this phenomena occurs. Not all of it, 50%. In other words, if you took us out of the picture and you just had the sight, would phenomena occur? Yes, is the answer. Yeah. And I'll tell you for why. Because on Mars, various pictures have started surfacing of weird plasma jets and plasma objects that have been seen and photographed by various of the explorers. I mean, there's at least three good separate pictures, some that show more than one image of the same thing. And I've looked at these and I've thought, these are plasma. These are plasma bursts. Yeah, nobody was there. Yes, of course, we, we took photographs and we eventually come to, to realise what's going on. But nobody was there. So in other words, this phenomenon must take place when there isn't any kind of intelligent interaction. But where am I going with this? So in other words, you know, somewhere like, let's say, Skinwalker Ranch, you're going to get phenomena there, but it's probably not going to be much. But if you start putting humans there, suddenly it becomes twice as much and the thoughts that we put into it start affecting what takes place and how we relate to it. Um, and obviously a lot of people see the Skinwalker Ranch phenomena as uh, negative, like a lot of malevolent stuff has taken place. And there is no question of that. But if you assume that every time you see an object in, you know, on the ranch, it's going to have a negative impact, it will do because you're interacting with this phenomena. And you're not just 
interacting with one ball of light that suddenly appears, you're interacting with what we refer to as an ag ag egregory, an egregory. I think that's right, egregory. Um, and what's an egregory? Well, basically, this comes from an idea within uh, parapsychology that you can create a ghost. And once you create it, and give it its own life and start trying to communicate with it, it will take on a life of its own. And not only will it produce phenomena, but it will be able to connect with people that come into that same environment and expresses it, express its reality. Now, does that mean that it's all made up? No, because the energy that creates that um, that entity yeah, is already there, and right. it just it just needs to be molded into what us humans essentially want to be there. And if you think in terms of a poltergeist house, ghost, a haunted house, how generally it seemed that there's you know, one personality to all the phenomena that takes place, rightly or wrongly. Oh, that's old Bert, you know, the ghost. <laughs> or that's, you know, Mary who died under horrible circumstances here 300 years ago. You know, we, we put personalities on these things and that builds up an entity, an, an egregory at a particular location. Well, if you think in terms of Skinwalker Ranch, you know, you're talking about an egregory that, that's, you know, 10, 15, 20 times, or maybe even 100 times bigger than one inside a haunted house. Right. So does that mean it's created by us? No, not whatsoever. It, it, these things are energy that absorb human consciousness interaction. And this is done over not just a few hundred years, but thousands and thousands of years, particularly if ritual activity is going on at that location just like there was at skinwalker ranch skinwalker ranch in the past was a sacred territory between two different tribes right and that was obviously as i mentioned the ute and the navajo they saw it as sacred land to them it was like a no man's land they would go in there do their rituals the, the sites are still there yeah. all of the rock art is still there there's a stone circle there uh, all right, it's mostly natural, but it, it clearly was used. It's aligned to the stars. And stuff was going on here, you know, maybe for thousands of years. There's sacred caves there, all sorts of stuff like this. You won't hear much about this in the TV show because they're trying to cater for an audience that purely wants aliens. And that's it. It's as simple as that. But there is a lot more on Skinwalker Ranch which you won't hear about. But as I said, the key elements of it is the geology of the site, the human interaction, and the fact that it has been a sacred place for thousands of years. So, is so, that, is that, what I've got from the book is that, that the, 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 like the shaman have more of a, a higher vibration. So, when they're in these areas, that they bring in more or stronger plasma stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're more effective. I, I wouldn't say they have a higher vibration necessarily. Um, I think they're more effective of interacting with this phenomena. And that obviously brings us into how they interact with this phenomena. Right. And they do that through what's known as quantum entanglement. 
and in particular what's known as macroscopic quantum entanglement. Now, what this is, is the idea that every particle, but particularly things like photons and electrons, can be twinned. They can come together or even just, you know, be produced and they will be produced as twins. And no matter how far away those twins, twinned particles get, they will retain an instantaneous contact between each other. So that one can be, let's say, here, and the other particle can reach the other side of the, the universe, and they would still instantly have a connection. So if you tweaked one, the other one would tweak in an equal, sorry, the other one would move in an equal and opposite direction. But this is just one particle. We're dealing with countless particles. I mean, you, know, you can't even count them taking place around us all the time. Well, you know, obviously we're all made of particles. Right. So some of, some of the particles are in my head, their twins are in your head, right. you know, or somebody else's head or somebody else's head or whatever. And this creates what's known as systems of entangled particles. Okay. And so firstly, it was considered until relatively recently that all of this only took place on a subatomic level. In other words, it had no impact on the world in which we live. That has now been disproved by various experiments that have gone on just within the past five years. I mean, they've entangled diamonds, they've entangled tiny microscopic drums which have been made to uh, resonate with each other, not through sound, but through uh, entanglement, quantum entanglement. Entanglement is being used, for instance, in the latest quantum computers that are, are being constructed at this time, which will obviously revolutionise computers and, and make them run probably 200 times faster than, than anything we've got now. But so the idea that entangled particles in my head, systems of entangled particles in my head, might be doing a dance that their partners in your head are doing the same dance. In other words, they are resonating and giving the same pattern, creates a transfer of information. In other words, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the same dance in my head is going on the same dance in your head. It's a transfer of information. That's what we call telepathy, you know, and on a, a much more sort of stronger level, it could even influence other people's minds. In other words, you could convey thoughts that another person could act upon. And, you know, obviously this has been the mainstay of everything from prayers to spells to positive thinking, all the rest of it, for thousands of years. And that's how spells work, in all honesty. I mean, I you know, there's books written about it out there. People have, have talked about this for ages. I mean, I've talked about entanglement um, on a macrocosmic level since, well, since the 2000s. Uh, I talk about it in great detail in my book, uh, Light Quest, which came out in 2012. So entanglement is important, but it's not just entanglement between human beings. It's entanglement between us and the phenomenon that we are observing. So if we are observing what we call a UFO, then it 
can be entangling with our mind. So suddenly we start thinking about that object and we start getting thoughts in our head like, oh, it's communicating with us. It's telling me such and such. It's telling me such and such because that entanglement is allowing an information transfer between you and the phenomena observed. And, of course, this continues with uh, cryptids and stuff like that. People believe that they, they connect with the minds of cryptids. But specifically with these UFOs, we are dealing with an entanglement with the sentience of these objects. So what is the sentience of these objects? Yes, they're being fed by human consciousness interaction, but there's another X factor involved. And that X factor is coming in from a higher dimensional level. That's these transdimensional beings, which we talk about obviously on the front yeah. of the book here, transdimensional intelligence, yeah. right? We call them M beings, by the way. Um, that was about to be my next question. A term which I must big up my good friend uh, Debbie Cartwright for this. She, she actually came up with the term. She's been using it for years. And for, uh, at first I thought, what, what, what are you talking about? And uh, But basically what, what she's talking about is N-dimensional beings. The N stands for number. Um, and the reason why it's just an N is because N in the context of dimensions or dimensional means that we don't fully know how many dimensions that we're dealing with. It could be five, it could be 11, it could be 32. We don't know yet. So the N stands for number, the number of, of dimensions involved. And we shorten the term to N beings, basically, uh, which I think is a good term. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, and they exist. I think they are creatures of the bulk. Uh, when I say creatures, that gives the wrong impression. That suggests that they are like that. They're not. They're pure energy, absolute pure energy. And they can take physical form by manifesting through plasma and using them as conduits and creating uh, quite literally manifestations of physical matter, which are either uh, being brought with them, perhaps from a, uh, a coexisting uh, brain world, which they're overlaying into ours so that you suddenly see cryptids or other strange creatures or entities. But all of these are simply part of a hive mind, uh, which manifests at a particular location, like Benton, for instance, in Yorkshire, which is considered to be the British Skinwalker Ranch. And I have to uh, mention my good friend Paul Sinclair up at Benton, who's a, a brilliant investigator, I've done various books on the Benton phenomena. And this term hive mind is what he uses. He uses this term. He says that all of the phenomena, the cryptids, the UFOs, paranormal activity, is all part of one big consciousness up there. Now, he calls it the host. He uses other terms, which I mentioned in the book. This is this egregore that we're talking about, this, this, this huge consciousness involved with these locations. And I talked to the guys at Skidwalker Ranch about this, and they said exactly the same thing. Yes, we're not dealing with a whole series of, of, of individual intelligences here. We're talking about one intelligence, one that acts like a hive mind, 
creating all sorts of individual acts, almost for show, almost to put on a display or to show how clever they are in many ways. And which again now obviously brings us into the question of what is their relationship with us? And I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it's good or benevolent. I think if there is one term I can use, it's immoral. In other right. words, they are not good, they're not bad, they're right. moral. What that means is that they can do ultimate good, but they can also do ultimate harm if they so wish. But most of the time, they're somewhere down the middle. And they relate to us. They've been around since the beginning. Yeah. When I say the beginning, I mean, we've not even talked about things like the Kezem Cave, which hopefully will come on. But I think that they've been around since we first started interacting with these intense geological environments. When we were in Africa, our earliest ancestors, as much as two million years ago, and they were on what's known as the, the Great Rift, the, the African Great Rift. And this is in countries that are today places like uh, Kenya, Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And this is where the earliest evidence of humanity has been found. And also the earliest evidence of human innovation and technology. It just suddenly emerges. For instance, if I can give you an example, uh, I've got loads of stones on my desk, so let's just find one and, and just show you what I mean. Right, a rock, okay? You pick it up, and if you wanted to, to make this into a toll, before around 1.75 million years ago, you just smash it down, it gets a bit pointed, and you use it. Right. Okay? That's the, the tools. These, are, these were known as pebble tools or older one industry tools okay mm-hmm. but then around 1.75 million years ago everything changed suddenly we started creating not only these beautiful stone balls multifaceted stone balls for no particular reason although i think i know why but we also created the first multifaceted hand axe it just suddenly came in and i just happened to have one of these on my desk at the moment These are what's known as an Acheulean hand axe. This particular example is one million years old. It could be older, but the the, the earliest ones, and they're not much different to the one I'm holding in my hand, were created around 1.75 million years ago on the banks of what is today the Lake Tukama. Uh, which straddles um, Kenya into Ethiopia. And everything changed at that point. I mean, you know, we we created these beautiful stone tools and we didn't really change the design very much for the next, well, millions of years. I mean, Acheulean hand axes were created through until about 200,000 years ago, okay, 200,000 years ago. Um, and then things really did start to change, but but they were, you know the, the, the innovation occurred around 1.75 billion years ago. Well, what happened? What happened at that time? Well, it's the answer is pretty easy. We invented fire, yeah, and yeah. fire 
was then used in a sustained fashion in the it would have been used in caves um and if you can imagine the situation you've got these people sitting around in a cave you know probably hunting during the day done whatever they're doing or whatever they're having a rest and you're somebody's putting on a load of plants and you know bits of tree and whatever and they suddenly put on psychoactive plants and we're not just talking about mushrooms. I mean, some psychoactive plants are huge, oh, yeah. great, you know, bushes, basically. And suddenly it starts affecting them. They don't know what's going on, but suddenly they start feeling different. They start thinking different. They start thinking deep. For the first time, thoughts start coming into their head. They start thinking about what we call today ontology, which is essentially who we are, why we are here, and where we came from type thing. But, of course, it doesn't develop for a long period of time. But eventually they're going to start to realise which of those plants that they're putting on the fire are doing this to them. And suddenly they start thinking, well, you know, they start thinking about art, thinking about beauty, about symbolism, representation of, you know, of, 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 of form and crystallised structure and stuff like this. So suddenly everything starts changing and if that's the case are they starting to be influenced and inspired by the fact that they are sitting on the greatest tectonic plates and fault lines in the whole world which is the great rift valley of africa in other words this is exactly the right environment that these transdimensional intelligences can manifest you know within environments and so obviously this is what happens in africa but as the the the, the book says the, the main showcase site that i that i in my part of the book talk about is the kezem cave and in israel yeah. and this was only discovered in the year 2000 uh when they were trying to build the the trans samaria uh, samaritan highway if i remember that's what it is called from Tel Aviv in Israel through to the, the the Palestinian territories of the West Bank, and they were just you know crashing through this this rock, exploding you know rock outcrops that they they didn't need. Bang! Suddenly they come across what appears to be the, this this cave or the remnants of a cave, and there are stone tools and bones all over the place. Most of them held within this this matrix which is so uh hard it's like um it's like cement basically i have to break everything out almost like this cement like matrix but anyway that's that's what the archaeologists do and so they work from the year i think 2001 all the way through to 2016 they stopped them because they had so much uh material to analyze that um, that they had to stop at that time but the most interesting thing, and this is what immediately piqued my interest, was that in 2019 it was announced that they discovered a piece of a swan bone. And as most people out there will know, I have a particular interest in swans and the constellation of Cygnus. And it had clearly been um, uh, remodeled for use in some manner. And 
you know, in other words, the, uh, the, the, the feathers had been removed, but it, and it was specially used for something else. And at the end of its life, it was placed within a hollow, which I consider to be the Holy of Holies within the actual cave. And the conclusion of the archaeologists involved from Tel Aviv University and their colleagues, and they've written a paper on this, um, is that this was used in what we'd now call shamanism which, if correct, means that as much as 400,000 years ago, because that's the, the start date, really, of the Kesem cave, is that these people were writing the book on shamanism. Wow. wow. And they were also producing or, or using these stone balls, these multifaceted stone balls, which most archaeologists say, oh, they were just for throwing or you know, you're knocking the, on, on, an animal on the head or something. But no, the main archaeologist over there, who is uh, Professor uh, Ram Bakai uh, of Tel Aviv University, he thinks differently. You know, he says these, you know, they may have, that may have been their primary thing. They may have wanted to throw them around occasionally, but ultimately these had a symbolic value. They were held in the hand and used as points of connection with the ancestors and in other words they were used for divination purposes which is very strange actually because the the word kezem in uh, the old hebrew language means essentially divination which is weird i mean in theory that's that's purely a coincidence it's purely a, a coincidence however it is worth thinking about but so they were using these balls. They were using, um, let's shoot, uh, swans' wings to achieve flight for shamanic purposes in altered states of consciousness. And at the same time that they were doing this, these people were becoming the smartest people, the smartest people on the planet. They were doing so many firsts for humanity that it, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I can't. I mean. They they, were cre they created what we call the the, the earliest um, canned food in the world. By what they would do is they would chop the legs off of, of deer and they would wrap them in such a way that they would be able to chuck them in their backpacks and they would keep for months. So that they wanted a snack, you know, they they they'd unwrap them and break away the, the bone and take the marrow inside. It was a nice snack, you know, canned food as it as it were. The earliest freezers in the world what they would do is you know that they would uh, have food you know raw food um, and they would then pack it within ash in such a way as again be able to preserve it for you know many many weeks in the same way obviously that much later we would use salt for the same reason you know before the discovery of, of freezers oh sorry the, you know the invention of freezers and fridges um, they had an incredible stone tool industry making the earliest uh, what's known as blade tools, a production line of blade tools in the world, earliest. And I mean, they even had this, what they referred to as a school of rock. I mean, not them, I mean, you know, modern day uh, sources. Um, and that was basically people would come in and learn different trades. And, and within this, this the Kezem cave, there were like every area was designated for a different reason. So they had a spatial awareness and they were doing different things, and they had a fire pit in there, which would seem to have, have uh, been used constantly for 
not just tens of thousands of years, but possibly even hundreds of thousands of years <laughs> uh, in exactly the same position. And I mean, if you go there now and you sort of reach in, and I went, I was there in 2019, and you see, you think, yeah, this this could this could have been done yesterday. You can still see the burn marks from these fires that were taking place, let's say, 300,000 years ago. So it's it's just extraordinary. And the other important thing is that these people were not Neanderthals. They were not Denisovans. I've written books about Denisovans with my good friend Greg Little. They were our own ancestors. They were modern, well, they weren't modern humans, but they were the proto-modern humans. Because although we haven't actually got the full bones and skulls and bodies of them the teeth of them are identical to our own and you know we have very distinctive teeth yeah. different to neanderthals and denisovans or homo erectus or whatever so these are our own ancestors this is where our technology and innovation began so all right this is all fine but you know your viewer is going to be saying well what the hell has all this got to do with ufos and aliens well, the answer is that just a short distance away from the Kesem Cave is a very important holy mountain. It's called Mount Gerizim. Now, you've probably never heard of it, but if you look in the Bible, there are a large number of references to it. It was the original dwelling place or Bethel of God himself. Uh, the God that obviously would later become known as Yahweh. And was known back at that time as El or Elohim. Um, the God of the and, yeah, God of the Israelites, the God of the Israelites. And Abraham, for instance, when he first arrived in the promised land, the first place he went to was Mount Gerizim. God appears to him, says, yeah, this is going to be a promised land. And Abraham builds an altar. It's the same place where Abraham uh, is about to sacrifice his son Isaac and God comes along or one of his angels anyway and says you don't have to do that there's a there's a, a sheep over there use that you proved your, your worthiness Abraham Abraham's grandson who is Jacob Jacob comes to the exact same spot lies down falls asleep on on, on a stone and sees angels going up and down between heaven and earth same place um, and when the Israelites finally are released from their bondage, you know, many hundreds of years later in Israel, they go for 40 years into the Sinai. They make the Ark of the Covenant. And that's a story in itself. We may well be able to come into that shortly. And they cross over the River Jordan to enter the Promised Land. Where's the first place they, they go? Mount Gerizim. And, and, you know, this was the, the, the absolute important place. But here's the important thing. God was said to appear on Mount Gerizim in his form as the Shekinah. Now, this, you know, as a word simply means the presence of God. But it's, it's accepted that it means the light of God. In other words, this is where God appears as light, manifesting light. So on this mountain, light would appear that was interpreted as the presence of God itself. The same light was seen in association with the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah, 
um, uh, of, of God were seen in, in connection with that. So that, you know, in other words, when the light would appear over the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, that was the Shekinah of God. I mean, there is another term that's used, which is kavod, I think, which may, which is a similar word. But, yeah, that they are, they are synonymous with the same uh, phenomena. Um, and so I started to look into Mount Gerizim. I found out a few very interesting points. Firstly, the people from the Kezem Cave and another very early site nearby called Jaljulia would go to Gerizim to collect the rock or stone to make their stone tools and this being even though there was equally decent quality flint local to them that they could have used which and they did use of course occasionally but they no they, they wanted to go all the way to that distant mountain on, on the on the horizon to get the stone that they would make there tools and it's, it was something known as Eocene flint okay so from the Eocene age in geological uh, epoch terms so so yeah so they had a special interest there's no question about that but the other thing is that I looked into Mount Garrison and I found that historically it's associated with what we today call UFOs or strange light phenomena and this is in more modern times so I thought, well, I've just got to go there. Haven't I? I mean, you know, firstly, I was going to go to the Kesem Cave, check that out, spend some time with the archaeologists uh, working there, and you know, get the full story of that. But I had to go into the Palestinian territories, uh, to go to the West Bank, and climb Mount Gerizim and talk to the people that still live up there today, who are known as the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritan has nothing to do with the people that you ring when you're a bit down. Um, it's these, these are the original people who claim to be the descendants of the original Israelites. Okay. The, okay, a little bit of backstory here. Obviously, after the Israelites arrived in the Promised Land for about 250 years, I mean, this is according to the Samaritans. That the the, the the other story is slightly different, but essentially it's the same story. That they spent time at Mount Gerizim. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was with them, and then there was a schism took place, and ten of the tribes remained in that region, and two of the tribes plus the, the priests, are known as the Levites, left. Uh, Mount Gerizim and um, set, did their own thing and they eventually end up in what we know today as Jerusalem and at the time Jerusalem was the home of a people called the Jebusites and I don't, don't know what happened to the Jebusites they probably knocked them on the head or, or something I should think but, <laughs> and they took over Jerusalem and this now became the new dwelling place of God and they built a temple there obviously it was Solomon's temple and they put the Ark of the Covenant in it so yeah that's the story that you will read uh, in the the, the, the the Hebrew Bible not Samaritan Bible the Hebrew Bible um, the, the Samaritan Bible is different it is seen to be older and some of the stories are, are different I mean to be honest both have influenced each other but what the Samaritan Bible says has 
variations in from what you read of the Hebrew Bible, which is what the Christian Bible is based upon. So they get to Jerusalem and they start bigging up Jerusalem as the place of God. And they start denigrating Mount Gerizim as being the true and proper place of God. And this just goes on for hundreds and hundreds of years to the point that they basically try and completely wipe it off the face of the earth as far as its importance is concerned. But there's no question. I mean, they couldn't even wipe it out properly because it was so important in the early days that it's still there in the book of Genesis or the the book of the book of Exodus or whatever else other books it's in. I mean, it's very clear. I mean, not only was it the, the true dwelling place of God, but it was seen to be the gate to heaven. In other words, from there, you could access heaven. Um, it was also seen to be the centre of the world, centre of the physical world, the, the, the omphalos navel of the world. Um, and it was where God had been since he created the world. That's why he was dwelling there, because he'd always been there. That's where he, you know, where he, where on um, the seventh day after he created the world, he had his rest on Mount Gerasim. Now, I mean, I'm not saying all of this is actual historical reality. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that this is certainly what the Israelites believed, and it was certainly, or it's certainly what the Samaritans still believe to this day. And I spend a whole chapter in this book showing that the Samaritans are absolutely right. And all the modern evidence, even from things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, are now proving them to be correct. Their version of the Bible is the correct one and shows how important Mount Gerizim actually is. Okay, so that's a backstory. So lights are seen there. I went to the top of the mountain and there's a whole there's a whole town there. Well, I mean, obviously it's a very big mountain. And, you know, I got there. I was there with a, uh, a, a, a Palestinian uh, Arab driver and interpreter. And we waited for all of the Samaritan guys to come out of the, uh, the synagogue that they get there. I had there. And he said, that's the guy you want to see. And this was the highest ranking Samaritan that's around. I mean, he wasn't the high priest, but he was like second in command. And so we sort of leapt out and sort of suddenly acoustic him in the street. I mean, I don't know what the hell he thought was about to happen. <laughs> and we just put these questions, like putting all these questions to him about the importance of Mount Gerizim. And I got to the point, I said to him, right, you know, are mysterious lights still seen on the mountain? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, they are. He said, Many of them are actually seen are green. I don't know why they should be green. It's something to do with frequencies, I suppose. So I said, you know, what what do they represent to you now? And, it, and the word that he said in, in, in Arabic, I just knew what he meant. And he just said, malak, malak. A malak means angels. So the Samaritans see what we would call UFOs manifesting on Mount Gerizim today as the messengers of God, angels coming down, which I find quite incredible because, you know, in this day and age where, you know, virtually every other part of the world, you'd probably see them in terms of, you know, nuts and bolts spacecraft with, you know, physical aliens in, the same phenomena that's seen, you know, on Mount Gerizim and obviously around, I mean, it's clearly not just Mount Gerizim, are seen by the Samaritans as you know, the manifestation of angels, something that 
we must assume would have been, had a similar uh, you know interpretation in many other parts of the world in the past you know so so that's it i mean mount garrison's got you know lots of fault lines and tectonic plates and rest. i mean it's perfect stuff to produce this type of phenomena but what why why are we talking so much about this well firstly i think that the kesem cave people were having encounters with these lights as much as 400,000 years ago they connected with these transdimensional intelligences they they, they, they grew to believe that they were important to them and that they helped inspire them to invent shamanism. Now, I'm not saying there was never any shamanism before this time. We don't know. But at this point in time, the oldest shamanism in the world is amongst these people, the, the Kesem people, as I call them. And they were becoming the smartest people on the, on the planet. Now, if you think in terms of ancient astronauts, theories or ancient aliens what's the whole concept of ancient aliens is that they have helped us in the past that they were there they they helped us with innovation technology and i think that that's absolutely correct but i don't think that it was only nuts and bolts physical aliens that were doing this you know it was trans-dimensional intelligences and beings who have been influencing human evolution and human civilization since the very beginning. And that when you come down to the age of the Israelites, which is in the period of the Bronze Age, you know, Abraham, Isaac, uh, you know, Jacob, all these people, they saw this same manifestations, this egregore, if you like, of Mount Gerizim as their God. That was Yahweh. And Yahweh, he is God. Well, recognized by the presence of plasma, yes, absolutely. Right. Huh. Leo, have you got questions you want to put up? Because we have a banner that we normally put up. Have you got questions that you can put up on your music? Yeah, there's a couple. Let me let me track them down real quick. I got them in the chat, so let me track them down and I'll post them for us to look at. So hold on, let me remove myself again. But I am here, <clears throat> just so you know, all right? So we had, um, when we were talking about this, um, we had Viv Moshia, who says, which ones, fallen or heavenly angels? And then Cassie Mac Heavenly, heavenly. Heavenly. Yeah. Not fallen. Fallen ones are flesh and blood human beings that were born and bred on earth, in my opinion. Um, oh. But that's a long story and something which I go into in books like from, uh, from the Ashes of Angels that came out as far back as 1996. And then Cassie Mackler said, um, so there aren't any aliens and angels. They're one and the same. Um. I think they can be, and 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 what I mean by that is that I mean quite clearly, flesh and blood aliens that come here in UFOs are not angels. Um, angels can either be flesh and blood beings that are interpreted by us as angels, uh, who are also known as the Watchers and the Nephilim, who I, I show in huge detail in my books. You know, were 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 little different to us. They looked different. They were probably a lot taller. And if you ask me today what I think that they represent. I think that they were the descendants of so-called Denisovans who started their time 
in places like Siberia, Tibet, Mongolia, as much as, you know, 200,000 years ago and probably died out about 40,000. But their descendants, their hybrid descendants, carried that knowledge um, into what we know as the, the Near East. Um, and that this arrived in waves, in stages, right the way down to the creation of Gebekli Tepe uh, around 11,600 years ago. And from that, you had like the crazy, you know, this, this burst of activity of human innovation that, you know, basically created the, 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 the type of Neolithic revolution. But the importance is that the people that wrote down the memory of these people called them angels. They called them watchers. They called them Nephilim. So that's created a lot of confusion because you've only got the heavenly angels, which are quite clearly celestial beings that are able to manifest it in light within plasma uh, and, you know, appear to us in whatever way they, whatever form they want. That's different. So there's a certain amount of confusion that's allowed all of these things to be mixed together, really. Wouldn't it? I mean, to me, if they're manifesting in front of somebody's face, basically, surely that person is going to see something to his own knowledge. Exactly. I mean, particularly if you're dealing with higher dimensional beings, you can't make out what they are anyway. So if they are intelligent enough, they are going to be able to transform themselves into a shape and a personality which we want to see. And this, in a modern age, could be aliens because we expect to see aliens under such circumstances. But in the past, if you were particularly religious, suddenly Jesus would be standing in front of you, you know, maybe talking to you, and suddenly you'd be transported to heaven itself. Or obviously back in medieval times, if a similar thing occurred, you know, you'd see this 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 light appear probably over something like a barrow or a mound where, where this light had never been before. Uh, you'd walk towards it and then suddenly you'd find yourself dancing with the fairies and, you know, eating with them and, you know, having merriment. And then you'd come up out of that and you'd find that time was lost, days, weeks, months, even years. I mean, there are some accounts about people losing 100 years. Wow. Um, but, yeah, let's assume that's exaggeration. That's but when we start seeing that in terms of modern-day abductions, um, then I think a similar phenomenon is going on. Once again, I have to stress, we're not necessarily talking about every UFO abduction. Of course we're not. You know, there could be you know, flesh-and-blood aliens abducting us all the time. But I definitely, definitely believe that plasma environments, plasma constructs and coming too close to them and becoming involved with this, what I almost call like a bubble universe that they create around them and entering into that, the interaction between their consciousness and us creates almost like a dreamlike environment, which is very physical, that we can remain within to have this two-way experience and communication for however long it takes and then for some reason you're regurgitated out of it you're thrown back into our reality and both time and space are lost Sounds like gained, actually. there are cases where people have actually gained time 
Uh, oh, wow, yeah, I've tourism never heard that. That, oh, sounds yeah. like that sounds like meditative state, though, doesn't it? Um, well, it, it certainly sounds like dreams. I mean, you think of dreams. I mean, we assume that, that when we dream, we enter into a dreamscape and it's all played out. It's almost like a film. We're entering into a film from beginning to the middle to the end and then we wake up. But actually, dreams are not like that. They transition from point to point within a dream. And you know, and you, you sometimes you, you become aware of this. You think, hold on, you know, you weren't in, in my dream earlier, or uh, this room looked different the last time I was walking through it, uh, or hold on, we've shifted to another town. Do you, do you know what I mean? In other yeah. words, you can become aware that that it that whatever's creating this dream is making it up as they go along, quite literally. And I think that something similar is going on when we enter into these bubble universes that I associate with these plasma constructs that, that you know, you see this from a number of, of, of accounts of, of UFO abductions and what actually takes place. They're so bizarre, so weird, so contradictory. And then when the people come out, the time spent inside an object almost bears no relation to the time that's actually physically lost by the people. Yeah. Yeah. When they're actually inside these environments, they can only be, yeah, if you count up every minute of what they were doing, it may only be five minutes. You know, it could be an hour, but I mean, it, you know, often it seems to be a very short period of time at all. And yet, when they are back in the physical world, I mean, you look at the Travis Walton uh, account, for instance, from, yeah. from Arizona from 1975, if I remember correctly. I mean, what happened to him bears no relation. To the amount of time that he was away. No, you know, we know that that for, in his case, for instance, that they they fully explored the whole area where he disappeared, uh, and you know would have come across him, and yet suddenly he, he sort of re-manifests somewhere and gets in a telephone box and rings people, and and it's can't remember exactly how much it is, but it's certainly over a week later that he suddenly reappears, and this was something that I. I started personally getting onto a long time ago when I investigated Britain's first ever UFO abduction involving a car stop and missing time. And this involved a whole family by the name of the Days, John Day, Sue Day, and their three children. And in 1974, they were driving along a road in Essex, quiet, quiet lanes, on a journey that should only have taken. 20 minutes. I mean, they were going from uh, John's uh, mother-in-law and their family back to their own home in uh, in Averley, and it should have taken probably about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. And they're driving along, and they see this this object suddenly come over. It's it's this oval blue shape, bright light. Okay, and. Two of the children are asleep in the back. The third one's got his hands on the passenger seat and the driver's seat, standing up and quite excited by what's going on. He sees the object. It's a UFO. And then it passes out of sight, so they think it's all over. And then they start to go around this corner, and suddenly the car headlights fail, the engine fails. They can no longer hear the tires rolling over the road as if there's gravity anomaly um, the 
car radio starts smoking and they pull the wires out the back because that's what you had to do in those days yeah. um, and they suddenly see in front of them this luminous bank of green mist stroke fog stroke gas those are the three terms that they use just covered the entire road but luminous and green so they go into this and everything just stops they feel nauseous they look around at each other then bang suddenly they're three quarters of a mile further on down the same road driving and you know i think john sort of turns around and says is everybody all right but here's a weird thing oh sorry they get home by the way and they realize that three hours are missing i mean it's completely gone they turn on the telly expecting to see a program that they will go coming home to see nothing and yeah they realize that three hours are missing they start having strange dreams uh, about what they described as like these gnome-like figures and bright rooms and stuff like this so something's going on here you know in the background but they ignore it for, for a long time and then in 1997 their concerns about what happened come to the fore to such a degree that they contact uh, a ufo organization that puts them in touch with me and i interview them with barry king um and uh, eventually end up this is in 1977 in august 1977 and you know obviously i'm i'm i'm, I'm this naive young ufo investigator you know believing in nuts and bolts spacecraft and that's what it was and what we did was we got uh, a hypnotist involved uh, through the fact that I was working for the British UFO Research Association and also Flying Saucer Review, which was the main magazine for UFOs at that time. And uh, the hypnosis revealed this onboard experience for John. Now, Sue wasn't put on hypnosis, but she started remembering around the same time a similar sort of experience you know on board this craft slightly different but you know there were definite crossovers but here's the weird thing about all of this and this puzzled me for a while is that when they went into this luminous bank of green mist two out of three of the children were asleep only one was awake when they came out of it and they were three quarters of a mile further on the boy was was still with his hands on the uh, the passenger and the driver's seat standing up and the other two children were still fast asleep exactly as they'd been when they went into it <coughs> and this puzzled me i thought if 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 you know they, they were abducted by aliens are, are we saying that the aliens put everybody back in their car and put them back exactly the way that they were just so nobody would notice or is something else going on here and it eventually it came to me just eventually came, got came into my brain i remember the actual day that that actually took place i was it was the time i was, I was still living in wickford i think which is where i used to live in my parents home they gone by that time and I suddenly it just suddenly came to me that hold on they obviously jumped through time and space in other words they were taken literally out of space time so that the journey 
meant that they went into the, the luminous bank of green mist. And then they were like suddenly thrust instantaneously as far as our space time is concerned. So they jumped space and time. And that whatever experience they'd had must have occurred outside of space time as that jump took place. So in other words, the entire abduction, their entire experience, which we will assume involved an intelligence, took place outside of normal space time. And that was my first indication that we were dealing with transdimensional intelligences and not physical flesh and blood aliens. That makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. So let me have so a look. See what, see what. Can you put that question from Nikki back up again? Leo? So, yeah, hold on. I'm trying to awake. Hold on. Here it is. Medicinal. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I have to relocate it. I apologize. Not a lot of medicinal stuff. <laughs> a lot of questions and a lot of, lot of comments. Here they are. Here it is. So do beings from higher dimensions tend to be more enlightened? That's from Nick. Uh, I, I think that we have to see that as red, I'm afraid. Um, I, I mean, the, I, I would say that they've probably been around for not just millions, but arguably billions of years. Um, perhaps even since the, the, the early days of the universe itself, uh, and arguably even before that. So as far as how intelligent they are I, I, it's off the scale i mean it, it's it's beyond anything that we can imagine um so that's why they're they're more amoral as opposed to good and evil i mean they just don't think in terms of oh compassion and you know they could they can do what they like if, if they wanted to manifest now and just stop everything they could do it but if they do do it they are ultimately showing off. Ultimately, that that's what they're doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, no, I'm serious. I mean, and you ask the guys at Skinwalker Ranch, you know, why certain things occur, and it's very clear. And at Bempton, you ask Paul Sinclair about this it's because they are showing off, and that's the only way that I can I can describe it. I mean, I've seen it on various occasions, and it's it's not. It's it's on a level which you just think this cannot a be coincidence, b be simply human minds picking up stuff or spirits. But I mean, it, it's it's on such a profound level, and obviously a, a Christian might might say, "Oh, well, it's God, God's intervention, or something like this." But I see it in terms of these age-old intelligences that have been with us since the beginning and have been inspiring in slow drips human development and human ev evolution since the beginning. Somebody else asked about um, what your thoughts were on the C5 protocol. So really that's kind of what you're talking about. Is well, talk, tell me all about the C5 protocol. Say what? I don't know about it. You know nothing it's about the C5? Book. It's, um, what's his name? I'm horrible with names. Oh, you don't mean Stephen Greer? Yeah. This, you yeah. mean Close Encounter of the Third Kind? Yeah, or the Fourth Kind. Oh, the right, sorry, Fifth Kind. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, Stephen Greer is a very clever man. I mean, you know, I mean, I've, I've met him. 
Uh, I met him in the 90s when he came over to the UK um, and spent some time in crop circle country. And he knows how to use human consciousness interaction to get phenomena to occur. Um, I mean, you know, he, he does it with big groups. He does it uh, commercially. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with all of his methods, but he is a clever man. and he understands what I'm talking to you about now. I mean, I would say that his beliefs are much more ET orientated, certainly publicly, although he does talk in terms of interdimensional or what we now call transdimensional, which is the more modern term. Um, but no, he, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it, it totally like blends in with what you've been saying as well. It's that we can have a, an interaction with them because of our consciousness. And yeah, then absolutely. And I mean, go sorry, on. go on. No, no, I was just going to say, I think that these shamans, these first shamans in places like the Gezem Cave, they were doing it 400,000 years ago. Yeah. You know, they, they formed this rapport, this relationship with the phenomena, which they saw in terms of a presence in, by seeing these objects, what we call UFOs manifesting. And they probably had close encounters. They probably had time, time losses. They probably had abductions, but they would not have been like us. I mean, if they had an abduction, they wouldn't have been taken aboard a nuts and bolts spacecraft. They'd have been taken quite literally into another realm where the ancestors would have been present. The animals, that the spirits of the animals that they'd killed, which were very, very important, would have been present. Depending what they'd been burning on the fire that day. <laughs> Well, no, by that time, they knew exactly what to put on the fire. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, uh, I mean, those that, have, you know, uh, will, will get the book will, will know that there's a picture uh, that my good friend, the artist Russell Hussein, uh, did recreating. I mean, you probably won't see it here, to be honest. Very yeah, that's what I was looking for a minute ago. Yeah, right. Okay, that picture there was Russell Hussein's creation of the first shaman, um, you know, doing his thing in the Kazem cave with, you know, his mates in the background. Um, you know, you've got the psychoactive plant there. You've got these multifaceted stone balls, which in many ways are the earliest crystal balls in existence. And you've got a fire there where stuff would have been. Uh, so so it, would make, it would have made sense to me that they didn't only just go and collect the stone from the mountain, whatever it's called. Names again begins with G. Garrison. So, yeah. That they didn't Garrison. just go to the Garrison Mountain for the for the tools that they were making the weapons and the tools, that they would get it for those balls, especially. I mean, if it has some sort of significance to them on yeah. different levels. Well, I mean, well, look, I mean I mean, obviously you've got holy mountains all over the, the world. Yeah. Um and most of them, perhaps even all, but let's say most of them are connected with strange light phenomena. Uh, I mean, in America, for instance, in California, you've got Mount Shasta, for instance. Yeah. Mount Shasta is unquestionably connected with strange light phenomena that's been seen for many, many generations, certainly going back to the 19th century. And by virtue of that, let's say historically for a long time, um, people have transformative experiences when they go on Mount Shasta. You know, they see, you know, all, you know, Lemurians to 
saints to aliens, all sorts of stuff that, that they see there. Um, and if you look at the geology, there's a massive great fault line that crosses right the way through the peak, which, remember, obviously was a, is a volcano. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, plates, tectonic plates coming together as well. And all of this creates exactly the right conditions to produce um, uh, electron bursts of activity. In other words, these environments that are, that are drenched in electrons that are just waiting to come together to create portals, to create objects, to create gateways through which, you know, uh, cryptids and things like that can come together. And this is not some new age madness. I mean, I was reading a, a paper just a couple of days ago about these uh, these these electron environments, these, these uh, electron bursts that, that they call them, occurring just before earthquakes. Um, and what they do is they create what are um, um, scholarly referred to as, oh, let me get the right term, uh, ionospheric environments. Now, that's a posh term for the right conditions for plasma to manifest. So you get the plasma burst to start with, then the the, the ionospheric environments, and boom, stuff happens. And this is in a paper, proper paper. Yeah. So you know, and the reason why those those electrons are, are created is because of the intense geology under the Earth. That's what creates the right environment for these gateways, portals, vortexes to open and to exist. And, of course, they're temporary. I mean, you know, they're not there forever. I mean, they come and go. And a UFO itself, in my opinion, is an intelligent gateway, an intelligent gateway. It, get too close to it and you will be taken out of this space-time, whether you like it or not. I wonder what happened with Jim Peniston then. Jim Peniston. Um, right, that's a very good question. I mean, obviously, you're talking now about the Rendlesham Forest in, uh, incident. Yeah. That took place uh, in Britain, not far from me, actually, in, in the county of Suffolk, in 1980. Now, basically, if we let's just recap here, what happened was that there's, there was a, a U.S. Air Force base by the name of uh, Woodbridge, and next to it there was another base, very almost touching each other, called um, Bentwaters. Yeah. And some guys were guarding the gate when they when it was reported that a weird light was seen, seemingly descended into the forest. So the guys go out there. I mean, I think originally there was there was probably about five of them, I think, and three of them said, we're going back. We, we can't handle this. We were going to go back. So the, the two of them, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs, continue on. And they see this light is now inside the wood. And... They approach it, and it's inside a, um, uh, call it a clearing. And as they get close to it, they have all these electrostatic effects going on. You know, hair standing on end, their clothes going, you know, and they feel like they're wading through mud, which I find, which is brilliant. This is this is all perfect descriptions of how electromagnetic fields would affect you. Perfect, and then it all goes a bit wobbly for them, but. It's Jim Penniston that claims that he actually gets up to the object and 
he sees it almost like this black glass, almost like obsidian, and that there are some symbols written across the side of it. I mean, you know, symbols clearly he doesn't recognise. And according to him, according to his memory, this is important, according to his memory, he touched the side of this object. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually it all goes a bit wobbly and he sees, they then see this object go back and away and out of it. But here's the thing. I mean, Jim Penniston had a notebook and obviously he's on duty. So he actually records down everything that happens. And then, seemingly, he records down a whole series of zeros and ones for, yeah. I don't know, let's say 10 pages worth of he, he doesn't. He didn't know binary. We've actually had Jim on. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Well, you know, it wasn't until 2010. So this is, what, 30 years later that he's doing something with Ancient Aliens, the, the TV show. And somebody says, you know, he brought his book along to be used as, you know, for, for yeah, the camera to take a picture of it and that. And said, and somebody said, well, what's all that? All these noughts and ones. And he said, oh, I just felt compelled to write those down the next day after I came back. And so somebody said, well, you know, realise that could be binary. It could be a binary message there. So, of course, they look into it. And obviously this was with the help of the ancient aliens people. And it reveals this truly bizarre message that suggests it's coming from an intelligence in the future. And it gives a series of locations, seven main ones, plus a, a base location, which uh, seems to be Rendlesham itself. Although, weirdly enough, it's not where the actual experience takes place. It's in the the middle of the local town of Woodbridge. And these sites, some of them are, are well known and some of them aren't. I mean, you've got somewhere close to the Nazca lines. You've got somewhere very close to the Great Pyramid. Um, you've got so-called Naxos Gate in uh, the Aegean, which is this incredible uh, site on one of the islands, Greek islands. Um, you've got a Mayan temple. You know, in, I think it's in, is it in uh, Guatemala or Belize? can't remember now. And you've got another location at Sedona, which obviously is a, a big New Age centre, but it's also somewhere that's been seen as sacred mm -hmm. to, you know, Native American first peoples for, well, let's assume thousands of years. Oh, and, and another one in Ireland, um, on the island of Arran. Yeah. Um, at this really weird stone fault uh, right up on the side of the of, of, of a you know a coast you know, this huge cliff face that goes down and you say uh, and you say so well, what's the commonality with all these sites well firstly when i looked at them i thought this is really weird i mean i've been to a, i mean there are seven main sites i think i'd been to about three or four of them within about the last couple of years and i thought this is weird. I mean, you know, am, am I being unconsciously led to go around all these sites? <laughs> and if I may tell this story, this is a good story. Yeah. Um, I then have a dream. And let me just put it in context. That's right. I've been to Egypt. So I've been to one of these locations, although I wasn't really thinking about that at the time. I, I was there with a, a group from the Chinese 
Edgar Casey Foundation Group. Okay, we had a great time, re really good uh, tour. Mm -hmm. Came back to the UK, and I'm going to say about a month later, I had a strange dream. I dreamt I was in China, climbing this mountain, this holy mountain, and reaching this this um, well in this ground. It's just like this circular drop, you know. And Graham Hancock, my friend and colleague, was with me, and we both stood each side of this well, and we were both downloading this information to do with Denisovans, which is this ancient race of, of, of population of people that were around until about 40,000 years ago. He's interested in them. Uh, he's written about them. I've written about them. And we were downloading everything that we knew so far about them, you know, as energy, pure energy, into this world. And, I mean, you know, there, there were certain sites around which seemed to be recognisable, although I didn't know where the hell I was. And as I came out of this dream, a name came into my mind. And I thought, where's this? You know, where, where is this place? And so I looked it up. And eventually I found that the name that I'd come up with was an obscure, not the main name, the obs an obscure name for a mountain called Taishan, Taishan Mountain, which is the oldest and arguably one of the most important holy mountains in China. Huh. But here's the weird thing. It's also the site of one of those Peniston Rendlesham Forest Code sites. And when I realised that, I thought, oh, my God. You know, I mean, I, I didn't pick up Taishan. I mean, I just picked up another name, which I'd never heard of before. And I actually really had to check to try and find it out. I thought, is this, is this telling me I should go to China, to this place called Taishan Mountain? So I spoke to the, the leader of the, the, this Chinese Edgar Casey Foundation group, and I told him everything I've just told you. And he said, oh, well, you know, we'll bring you out here on a pilgrimage. We'll go climb the mountain. Oh I said, well, you know, we'll do some workshops, we'll pay you some money, you know, pay for your flights. So within about, I don't know, six weeks or something, I, I was on a flight going out to China to climb this mountain. So the thing about the Chinese people is that they love doing ritual. I mean, they want to do it all the time in the hotel, morning, noon and night. Anytime you go to a site, they want to do it when you arrive in the middle, when you leave. And they, and, and they look towards you as like, teacher that's literally the term that, that was used for me in chinese of course to, to to sort it all out right and i haven't got a problem with that. that's great that's no problem i mean yeah i like doing this type of stuff anyway right so we got we got on this holy mountain um the first temple that we got to they wanted to do a big sketch as we as we call it so they, they lay out everything all the stuff they bring all their pendants food drink everything everything they lay the whole lot out and you do this this meditational thing, you know, which involves a creative visualization. And for me, I could see at the top of the mountain this this tower that looked like a, a European church tower, but it seemed to be on its own. And I could see these um, see us standing inside this tower, and I felt it was a tower that that was associated with the stars. That there was like representation of stars or they watch the stars from here or something, you know, to do with the stars. So I came out of the meditation. I, t I told 
I told everybody about this. I said, oh, right, okay, great, you know, like, whatever, you know. So anyway, we, we, we went up to the top of the mountain, and there is exactly the tower that I saw. Oh, wow. And the thing was, is that all around it was all these star constellations, and it looked like a European church tower, like a square European church tower. And, I've, and I, you know, I mean, I, I got up there with one of the other, other lads and I said, that's what I saw. That is what I saw. I said, that's where we've got to do our own ritual up here. So anyway, everybody else arrived. But at the base of it was this circular well. And, and it wasn't even me that noticed it. The other people said, oh, there's your well that you told us you, you dreamt about. I said, oh, my God, it is. It's that. So anyway, so we went up to the top of this um, this tower, and we're on the roof. So um, there was obviously like balustrades around it. So we're doing this this thing where we're invoking the immortals of all of the sites of the Rendlesham Forest Code, oh, you know, wow. to, to like come and witness what we're doing, yeah, right. and obviously also evoking the one of the mountain, the, the the Chinese immortal of that particular mountain, to come to us now. To witness what we are doing, right? right? Right. At which very moment, you know, we're in meditation. I open my eyes, and there's this man standing right in the middle of our circle, who's quite clearly a monk, but dressed slightly bedraggled, just standing, and he's got a smartphone, and it's obviously on video, and he's going like this, and he's videoing us. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're obviously somewhere we shouldn't be. And, you know, he's getting video evidence to throw us off this place and possibly arrest us. So, you know, eventually it ends. And, you know, I look towards the, the leader of our group. I says, is this guy all right? I mean, you know, are we okay to be here? He said, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. fine. No problem. Fine. All right. That's good. So, anyway, we get up. And this this monk puts his arm around me and just points towards the sun and starts talking in Chinese. And I sort of have to turn around and say, what's, what's he talking about? And he says, he's asking you if you can see the 42 colours of the sun. I said, what? And th this was the start of two days of absolute madness with this mad monk who claimed not only to be a descendant of the last king, who ruled this region, but was the guardian of the very mountain. And he said that that morning he'd woken up and seen a white dragon in the sky. The first time he'd ever seen a white dragon, whatever that means, whether he saw clouds or what, I don't know. But, but I mean, he said, well, saw a white dragon in the sky and knew he had to climb the mountain, which he hadn't done for something like one and a half years to meet people that were in importance. And he said, that's you. And so, it, sorry, this is just this is where it starts. So it gets even more bizarre than this. Right, so he then right. takes us down to the base of this tower. And I didn't realize there's actually an entrance into a shrine that goes beneath this tower. And he went in there and he pulled out all of this dress, all these robes of an immortal and dress me as an immortal with all, I mean, there are pictures of this. So, you know, we can post, you, you can see from my Facebook thing in 2019. I mean, and I remember as this happening, thinking, what the hell is going on? 
<laughs> and you know, he's so I'm now dressed as an immortal. He thinks I'm some kind of a mortal character or something. So anyway, we, we move away from here to the monastery, which as a Taoist monastery, and he takes us all into this Taoist monastery and he's talking to us, and it becomes clear that he's nothing to do with this monastery whatsoever. And the Taoist monk says, Oh, get out, get out. You know, we can't use this as your personal, you know, temple or something. You think, what the hell is going on here? So we go up to the highest point on the mountain, and there's this massive monolith that, that's that's angled like that. It points due north. By this time, he's got this statue out from, from somewhere, from shrine, and he's carrying it or climbing up this, this monolith with this statue. Chinese guards are saying, oi, come down. He's got this statue, drops it, smashes on the ground. Oh, my God. This is just chaos. This is just chaos. What the hell is going on? So, anyway, he wants to show us more. But we say, look, look we've got to go. We've, got, we've really got to go. We, want, we need to get down the mountain. And so, you know, eventually let's go. And we arranged to go back the next day. And we, we were going to start off something like 12 o'clock from the hotel. Just before we start, the mad monk comes into the hotel handing out cans of beer to everybody, <laughs> even though he didn't drink himself. And this is 12 o'clock. And you think, this day is not going to go the way that you think it's going to no. go. <laughs> and so anyway, I'm thinking we, we, we've got to try and lose him or something. But anyway, we, we, we went to the top of the mountain and there he was waiting for us. And... I mean, and we, we, we finished off what we had to do ritually, and he actually behaved himself during that. But he said, I've got something to show you. And he then took us off that peak onto another peak, a quite separate peak, to show us this secret temple of this goddess called, goddess called Bisha. Bisha. And he took us into the sacred caves, the rest of it, something we've never got to have seen if, if we... And, and I mean, he was quite clearly the guardian of the mountain, the personification in human form of the mountain. But I've never, ever encountered anybody who was a shaman and a personification of this type of person as, as him. Never, ever, anywhere in the world. And but the thing was, we, we did that. We did a ritual there and the rest of it. By this time, it's starting to get dark. And so we have to leave this this shrine. So he then takes all the headdresses off the statues and gives them to one of the, the, the girls in the group and says, take them down the mountain. Thinking, what? So we then have to go down a mountain, not on any proper steps, but crawl and, you know, and go down this really dangerous mountain. It took us about three hours and he killed my legs. Um, <laughs> And we get back in the hotel eventually. We've, we've lost him somewhere along the way. And at this point, you know, all I want is a beer, in all honesty. I mean, my legs have, have gone. All I want is to sit down, just have a few beers and relax. So I've, ha I've started to have a few beers. And one of the leaders of the group says, oh, we've got somebody to, to meet you. And this Taoist, this Taoist monk who really looked the part, looked like something out of some kung fu movie, comes in. <laughs> And says, oh, he's come to meet you and, and talk to you about spirituality and that. And there's me swigging back beer. And I think, oh, my God, this does not well. This doesn't look good. Um, anyway, he, he, he chatted. He was a great guy. Obviously, talked to a lot about stuff. And 
that was that. And the mad monk came back to the hotel five o'clock in the morning to take the headdresses to take them back up the mountain. Why? But of course, the the part of this story that I haven't mentioned, and this is brings us back to what we've been talking about to do with UFOs, is that the night before we climbed the mountain on the first time, we went to this theatre production, open air theatre production at the base of the mountain, where behind it you could see the peaks, and I started to see these lights rising up from the peaks. And at first, I thought it just must be Chinese lanterns or something going on up there, but but they were clearly not. So I started to photograph them, and I've, you know, some of the pictures of them are in the book I won't worry to, to get here because this was something different. And you know, I managed to get some photographs of at least one, which I, I reproduce in the book. But the interesting fact is that we came away from Taishan Mountain, and a few days later, there was a major earthquake centered upon that mountain. So these wow. lights are what are known as earthquake lights. And earthquake lights are produced by the stress and strain of the earth through this process of what's known as piezoelectricity that produces these electron bursts that creates the right environment, that creates these UFOs yeah. or mysterious lights, which we saw. And, well, essentially that was the story of me going to Tyshen. You didn't, didn't get arrested. Your that. question about um, Rendlesham Forest. Yeah, you're lucky you didn't get arrested for nicking a whole bunch of headdresses from some holy cave. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, as I said, I have never met anybody like this in my life, and I, I, I doubt if I ever will again. They were the sort of person that, for some reason, you obey. It's like they know things that you don't about reality, and that if you follow what they ask of you, you are going to share with that. And that's the only way that I can, yeah, I can describe it to you. All right, let's see if we can power through some questions. Bill Van Horn says, does Andrew have any experience with people projecting their consciousness into the luminal extra dimensional world and interested with the others? I have no idea what that means to you. Um, well, we can break it down. I mean, you know, others, you know, other is the term that we occasionally use for these trans-dimensional intelligences because they, they, they are other, they exist outside of our physical reality. Now, as I said, this multidimensional realm that, that surrounds us both independently, but also we are overlaid, our physical reality is overlaid within it, is known as the bulk. A lot of people don't like that term. I don't like it. So, so we, call, we just call it the outside. In other right. words, that which is outside normal space time. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you've got the outside and the intelligences of it, just in general terms, are other, not the other, just other, basically. Um, so, you know, you could use those terms if you want. But can we interact with those end beings? And I think that the answer is yes, we can. Because I think that unless we do, they will continue to see us almost like ants in a an anthill. You know, in other words, they will just see us as doing the same old thing that we do year in, year out, year out, millennium after millennia. And, yeah, they might help us here and there, you know, build a new, you know, anthill or change the courses or whatever. But ultimately, not a lot is going to change. But can you imagine if 
you know, the, you, the ants of the local land, ant hill, for instance, suddenly came into your house, went up the wall and spelt out your name, you'd soon start taking a notice of them then. You would. Because you'd suddenly think, oh, my God, there, <laughs> there is a connection. They, they, you know, they, their intelligence is far more than we've ever given credit. That's why we have to start thinking in terms of communication with end beings. We have to. And how do I think that's going to happen? Well, firstly, I am certain that sound is a key, important medium of communication with them, particularly very low frequency activity. They've even realized this on Skinwalker Ranch, for instance. But, you know, we've had some hits on uh, at, at, uh, to do with low frequency sound at Bempton. And I'm, and I'm certain this, this is generated by something. Um, I mean, I'm uh, trying to think if I've written all this up somewhere. I don't think I have. But anyway, so that, that, that's that. But beyond that, I think that the communication is really going to start happening when we build these quantum computers, because they're going to be they're going to work through the use of quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is what is behind communication. Yeah, yeah, instant communication including telepathy and it's already come to some people's minds that if we observe a quantum computer it may affect the results coming out of it so they're even talking about you know building quantum computers down in deep basements so that we can't actually observe them actually working because there is a fear that human consciousness interaction the observer effect or the observer principle could affect what's going on. Now, if we're thinking this way, think about the the, the end beings. They're going to think exactly the same way. They're going to think, my God, this is our easiest opportunity to be able to convey direct messages to these people to affect the results of what they are doing. Now, that therefore suggests that this could become a perfect medium of communication between us and them. Absolutely. So Nick is asking, how is CERN experimentation affecting the, our reality? Shall I say that again? How is the CERN experiment affecting our reality? Not sure. Um, I mean, for reasons which I can't go into, I've got to do a lot of research on that this very week. So maybe I'll have an answer in a week's time. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, I, th I think... The only thing that you need to think about is that human consciousness interaction is going to work with everything. So it's not just going to work at somewhere like Skidwalker Ranch or Mount Gerizim, Kezem Cave or Benton. It's going to work at CERN as well. And particularly if you are dealing with subatomic particles and particles which we haven't even discovered yet, yeah. that, you know, the, 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 the operatives, the people that are working there at CERN are in some ways going to be affecting the results that they get. They're never going to realise that, I don't think. But, I mean, do remember that right in front of the entrance to CERN is a huge, great statue of the, the of the is it God, God Shiva, yeah? yeah? I mean, why is that there? <laughs> Good question. What else is there? It, it suggests that, you know, that, that communication can, could, could take place. 
Uh, whilst we're mentioning uh, Switzerland, I know that CERN straddles, was it? Uh, is it Switzerland, uh, France, Austria? France, Switzerland. Is that it? Or is there a third one? I think Sorry. it's just them two, but it's not anyway, France. Austria. Right, not to worry. I'll need to know that within a week. But um, is that okay? Sorry, let me get me focus here. Um, so, oh God, I've lost my track here. Uh, How do you think CERN affects our reality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. Well, I don't know. I've lost my thread there. But all I'll say is that it's going to, and that I know. I was going to say is yeah, Switzerland. Uh, you've got something there called the Blue Brain Project. I don't know if you know about that. Uh, basically, what they're trying to do is to transfer human consciousness into a, you know, an AI essentially. I mean, that you know, so that it can live forever. And for them to do this, they've had to map out the human brain. I mean, and you know, create parameters for it, literally, so that they can create this in an artificial. Uh, environment and what they have worked out is that the human brain works on up to this is their words up to 11 dimensions of geometry now that's a very very important number because as i said in m theory which is the branch of string theory that's brought together five different variations of, it, of, of string theory there are 11 dimensions out there, you know, of which obviously we work on three dimensions of space and one of time. Um, so to suggest that the human brain has the capacity to work on 11 dimensions suggests that we are almost like, you know, 11 dimensional already, that once we realize how we can start communicating with multidimensional intelligences and environments, our brains are already wired for that just in the same way that a, a smartphone, excuse this very old-fashioned phone, um, you know, can be wired to 5G networks before the 5G network arrives. It's already, you know, wired in readiness for that. So our brains are already wired in readiness for us to start using 11 dimensions. I find that quite extraordinary. Um, you know, and, and, you know, obviously I mentioned that only because we're talking about Switzerland here. But coming back to CERN, I mean, quite clearly they're looking for higher dimensions. There's been a lot of rumour, a lot of talk about what goes on there. You know, they're trying to create black holes and stuff like this. But, I mean, one of the things that they want to try and achieve is evidence of higher dimensional reality. And... In other words, we there are a number of particles which we, we either know about or uh, predict exist. But in theory, there's still something missing. And that something missing would seem to exist on a higher dimensional frequency or vibration. They are looking for that. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, Shiva, the, the sacred number associated with Shiva is the number 11. Um, you know, the, the different temples have like these levels that always generally have 11. Nobody really can can explain that. And I've always talked about this and I thought, I wonder if they know something about dimensional reality that, you know, not, not they, I mean, you know, the, the, the ancient Vedic peoples knew something about dimensionality that they embodied within the cult of Shiva. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, where it comes from? Yeah. It certainly does. 
So we have Cassie has asked again, um, what's the most mind-blowing thing you've seen or learned so far? Good one, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, I've seen objects fall out of thin air. I've dug up swords that were, were, were concealed away and that we found virtually by psychic means. Um, you know, I've encountered ghosts. I've actually projected. Um, not a lot, but just, you know, the old experience here and there. Really? But, I mean, okay, can I, I'm going to give you one example of what I think is the influence of an end being, okay? Okay. There were others, but this one blew my head. Um, when I got onto Benton for the first time, which I'm going to say was 2018, okay? Right. Um, I'd you know, somebody mentioned it to me. I'd watched a couple of videos involving Paul Sinclair, which I, I seriously you know, suggest most of your viewers do if they don't know anything about Benton. Paul Sinclair, he's, he's a brilliant storyteller and he, he tells the, the different paranormal UFO cases so well. I mean, he's a, he's a great man as well. Um, and I thought, I'd like, I'd like to know more about this place, you know, maybe maybe visit it. So I talked to my, my, my good friend and colleague, uh, Richard Wald. I mean, he's an author of various books. And what we like to do on a Saturday night is get together relax and do meditations about whatever theme we're working on at that time uh it could be somewhere like gebekli tepe in southeast turkey recently we've been focusing on himalayas looking at stuff to do with yeti and whatever um, and what we'll do is we will project our minds through visualization to the site and try and either see something of interest or communicate with a spirit or something like that that appears that will give us information. And we'll then come back out of the meditation and we'll share that. And that will inspire us when we go back into the meditation. And we do this four times, okay? So generally, by about the, the second or third meditation, we are focused together on what we're doing. We know roughly exactly where we're going, what we need to know. You know, in other words, we're synchronized, you know? And then afterwards, we will check everything out. Well, we went to do the same thing for Benton. And we visualized ourselves going through what I consider to be the, the, the portal into, not portal, what I mean, I mean physical portal, which is the Rudstone monolith, <laughs> uh, which is just on the edge of it, which is the tallest standing stone in Britain, which we think probably was one of two that stood very close together. This is Neolithic, dates back to about 3000 BC. Uh -huh. So we visualize ourselves going through that into the, 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 the Bempton landscape beyond. And Richard suddenly found himself at Bempton and he could see, I might get a bit graphic here, but we're, we're amongst friends, so that we'll be all right. Yeah. There's a, an RAF station there. And it was abandoned during the 1970s. And, I mean, we didn't know much about it. So I think I'd read about it. But he certainly had. He didn't he'd hardly read anything by the time we did this meditation. Um, but I knew, I knew that it was there. And he saw himself there and going down underground into these bunkers. And he didn't know where he was going, what he was going to see. And 
yeah, so he's going down these corridors and he suddenly comes out in this, into this bigger room and he sees all these strange um, mur murals on the walls and they're incredibly sexually related. You know, people doing all sorts of interesting things. And then he could see all these bodies and realise that people were having sex. But this was part of a, a sex magic ritual, okay? And as he saw this, I mean, by the way, this is not what we normally say. This is, this is not normal. Um, uh, as he saw this, he just saw the wall just open up, almost become like a, like a plasma burst of activity. And the vision just stopped. And I think this was what he saw on the first of the uh, meditations. So he went back in for the second one. And he's back at Bempton, back at the same location. But this time he could see this, this vehicle parked in a car park that's on the edge of it. And he described the car. He said it was blue. I can't remember what make it is now, but he described the make. And he saw this figure, this, this man, getting out, quite a young guy, getting out, walking up to the, um, to the same place that he'd seen previously, going down these bunker, going down at the bunkers, going along the same corridor, seeing the same murals, but they were now slightly weathered, so this was clearly later. And him going into this room, same room that he'd seen before, standing there, and the same thing happened. The wall just opened up like this sort of plasma burst, like a gateway. Just poof. Wow. And then as it withdrew, the figure had gone. The man had oh. gone. And Richard said that this person had gone to these bunkers wanting to look at these murals. He'd, he'd heard of them and he said, I can see him in his house looking at pictures of them on his computer. So he knew that they were there and for whatever purpose, he, he decided that he would actually go to these bunkers and see for himself. But something terrible happened to him. You know, the sense was that he disappeared. He literally disappeared. I said, so, what, what, I mean, what you're saying that, sorry, he's a missing persons or, you know, this is what happened. He said, you know, have people disappeared? I said, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, Paul Sinclair has talked about several people that have disappeared at Benton under very mysterious circumstances. He says, well, you know, can, can, we, can, can we look this up? Well, sorry, th this is afterwards, but I'll, I'll tell you what else happens in this vision. Because... As this person disappears, he hears this voice in his head, a voice that, that seems to be, you know, talking to him as if, like, it, it knows more, it knows what's going on. He says, you know, nine years, nine years. You just look, nine years, you know, nine-year nine anniversary. Um, and the word sacrifice was used. Oh, wow. And... You know, so he mentioned this, obviously, you know, when he came out of this. He said, I don't know what this means. It's, it's implying that something to do with nine years, whatever. I don't know. So anyway, we looked this up afterwards and we found, and I'm not going to use the name because there are families involved here, which I, I cannot mention, but, you know, you'll find this online, that a young guy 
had gone to Benton, parked his car. His car was exactly the model and colour that Richard had seen and had walked from there up to Benton. And there, obviously, nobody knows what happens next, but it's suggested that he had gone down into the bunkers because a year later they actually um, – you know, search them specifically in the knowledge that he may well have gone down into them. I think he definitely did, but this is something that only took a while to come out. Um, he had on a memory stick pictures of the murals, the, the sexual murals actually in those bunkers. So he knew of them. And this was one of the clues that obviously suggested that he had been down there. Um, so obviously he, he did eventually disappear. He was a young guy. I mean, everything about him checked out completely. So, you know, obviously we're discussing saying, look, you know, your psychic information is really, really on, you know, on cue. That's brilliant, really good stuff. But then we noticed when he actually disappeared. And it was exactly nine years to the day that we were doing the meditation within, um, you know, within an hour or so of that. And nine was very important to us at the time because we've been doing a lot of work to do with the number nine um, in connection with Rendlesham Forest and stuff like that, which we would earlier been working on. <clears throat> so that number meant a lot to us at that point anyway. And, this freaked us both out, and we, we talk about this to this day, because this is something that cannot have come purely from, A, pure coincidences, making it up as you go along, or even spirits telling you, you know, about a particular place. This is manipulation. This is <laughs> suggesting that whatever intelligence was behind Bempton, the moment that we started to connect with this site, it said, I'll show you what I can do. And, you know, that doesn't mean that all of this happened simply because we were meditating, but the synchronization of it is beyond coincidence. Yeah. And that to me is an example of how in beings work. It was showing off. Showing off. Yeah, as I said to you, showing off. Showing off. So, Jeff. I mean, that guy, I mean, as I said, it was eventually concluded that he had gone down into the bunkers, uh, probably to look at these images. By the way, um, there is absolute knowledge known about uh, these occult rituals that went on there, and that uh, it's suspected that these murals, which are there, by the way, you know, you can look at them. Just, just look on on Google and just put um, sexual images, uh, Bempton, and they'll come straight up. And the thing about them is that they're not crude in any way. Whoever's done them was a fine artist, an absolute artist that did them. They're, they're very much in a style of, I'm going to say, 1950s, 60s. You, you, you'll see my, what I mean when, 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 when you look at them. Some of them are not done only just involve men and, and women, but also these horned devil-type characters as well, almost like devil-like figures. This reminds me of what the hell is the, the, the sex that is around High Wycombe. 
it's the sub. Uh, what you mean the West Wickham case? You mean Francis Dashwood and all that sort of stuff? Uh, well, it's the, it's the Hellfire sub- Club. The Hellfire Club. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah it reminds but, me. Okay. The important thing is that sexual energy is incredibly powerful. I mean, yeah. it's arguably one of the most powerful human energies that, that, that can be. So if you can imagine people having sex, and by the way, I didn't expect to be talking about stuff like this You're tonight, have, having sex down in these bunkers in the, the 70s and the 80s and generating enough energy that it virtually opened portals. I mean, that's that's an incredible thing to to to, to consider as a, as a reality. It seriously is, and it's uncontrollable, really, isn't it? It's not something that you can. Well, it's powerful. Control. It's very, very powerful. It's it's organic and pure power, isn't it? It's just wild. It is. It is. I mean, you know, clearly, occultists have been aware of this, you know, for for, for hundreds of years, of course. You know, sex magic is something that's very uh, important um, to a lot of occultists. You know, for that very reason that it can be utilised. You know, to project. I mean, and 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 if you bring in something like uh, quantum entanglement with it as well, it can, it it can be projected out. You know, and to to affect others. But beyond that, if you're doing it at places like Benton, which, by the way, if we're talking about geology, one of the one of the most important fault lines in the whole of Britain runs right through this location. It's called oh, the Benton right. Fault. Called the Benton Fault, and it runs from the coast. If you go out onto a boat, you can actually see it. There are various other micro faults as well all around it, and it runs east-west right the way to the That's general right. area of the Rudstone Monolith, which marks the Neolithic uh, settlement that was in the in that area. I mean, there are other incredible monuments around there as well, including something called Danes Dyke. Now, it's nothing to do with Danes, nothing to do with the Vikings. It's this 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 ditch that's about a hundred feet deep and about a hundred feet across that cuts off Bempton or part of Bempton and an area known as Flamborough Head, which is just the south of Bempton. And in a triangle, so it's like a huge triangular area that's cut off from the mainland because of this deep trench. And it's a linear trench. It's associated with weird phenomena, uh, lycons, you know, dogmen have been seen actually in this trench. So, you know, it's, it's definitely associated with weird phenomena. Um, and it's Neolithic. I mean, the, the earliest people that, that uh, excavated it only found stone tools within it. They didn't find any pottery or anything. If you look at it up today, people generally say, oh, it's Bronze Age or something, but it's not. It was Neolithic, almost certainly. And it was constructed probably around 2600 BC, the same time as the Rudstone Monolith. And archaeologists say it was created as a defensive thing so that the settlement inside that triangle could be protected against anybody coming in from the, the mainland that is rubbish because there is no settlement actually inside the triangle itself and i mean this, i mean it, it, i can't remember exactly how long it is it's a couple of miles long that the, the danes oh, died wow. I mean, incredible so i mean the amount of human effort and engineering that went in to create it and 
there's, there is no settlement inside there. None. So the settlement, the Neolithic settlement is outside of it, as I say, in the direction of the Rudstone Monument, which is beyond it on the mainland side of it. So why did they create this huge, great triangular area of land and completely cut it off? And I think the answer, in my opinion, I mean, I do talk about Bempton in the book, by the way. There's quite a lot about why it's so important. Um, is that this was some kind of magical landscape, you know, that was known by the Neolithic people for the phenomena that took place there, and they tried to contain it within it. So that's like, what they were doing. Oh, wow. Caging it. They were. That's exactly what they were doing. And, and you think in terms of occult, what do you do to evoke something? You create a triangle, not a circle, right. a triangle. Well, you put two together, don't you? You don't. Yeah. So, um, Jess, I'm worried about you. It's like two and a half hours and... It's getting late for you because you're poorly. <laughs> so, um, Jess, well, let's, have a, let's have another couple of questions and then we'll right. call it. Quick. All right, Jess has asked, um, how do you feel about time travel? Um, I feel fine about it, but <laughs> I mean, as far as how it relates to anything that we talk, we've talked about here, uh, I think the only important thing to remember is that outside of normal space, time, time doesn't work the same way. Right. Um, this has been predicted. You can see this, you know, in various, you know, scientific sites or look on YouTube. That once you get into a higher dimensional state, it runs backwards and forwards in time, and that that means that any intelligence that has access to this can be at any point in time. You know, they could be they could, they could be in the here and the now, but they can also be somewhere in the past, and they can be somewhere in the future. But here's the importance about that to do with UFO sightings. How often do you hear that when somebody has a close encounter, they say that not only do they feel some kind of connection, some as if it, 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 it it's something that, you know, some not, not just profound, but they feel a, a connection with what's going on, as if they've known that intelligence all their life. Right. And thereafter, they continue to that of that connection they may have other experiences later on in life whatever here's the thing if the intelligences behind many ufo encounters are of a higher dimensional nature then they are truly outside of time so the moment that you connect with them in your trigger event your main event they've been monitoring you since the day you born you were born they okay. probably were responsible for the balls of light going around your cot when you're a few months old. That's true. And they are probably responsible for the last thing that you remember before you die. They're there all the time. Yeah. So that connection is not a one-off. The intelligences that you encounter during a UFO sighting or encounter have been with you since the beginning and will remain with you until you die. That's good to know, actually. I'm kind of like, I like that. But don't, don't, haven't you heard this? No. I mean, you know, I mean. Well, I might have, but I forget a lot. <laughs> I mean, pe people, people come to me and they, and they, they have an incredible experience. I mean, incredible. And they, they generally it's quite normal people that, I don't know, they just have to be in the right place at the right time. Let's suggest that. Although I don't believe that is the case. I think that they're always, 
being singled out to have an experience at the right time in their life. And they come to me and they say, look, I want to see something like that again. I want to experience what I experienced then. I want to see it again. And I say, well, look, all I can do is just take you out to somewhere where you're, you're likely to see something like that. So let's go to Bempton or something like that. And so you go to Bempton and for whatever reason, something, nothing really happens, to be honest. I mean, you know, weird things have happened when I'm, I'm there. I mean, but that's more to do with sound recordings and whatever, not actual encounters. And in many ways, they go away a little bit frustrated because that connection has been made. They, they feel that it's something that's there at the back of their minds that, that, that is there permanently. And all they need to do is just be at the right place at the right time again, and it will re-manifest. And who knows, later on in their life, maybe that's exactly what will happen, and they'll feel like they're going home or whatever. But I think that all of this happens because when you have the close encounter, you are connected with something, not in the here and now, but from start to finish, the Alpha Omega from the beginning to the end. In other words, this thing has always been with you and always will be. And I think that any of your viewers out there need to, 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 to know that. If you have a UFO encounter, the if you believe that there's an intelligence behind it, be aware that that intelligence has always been with you and will remain with you until the day that you die. I, I like I like that. I like I like the message that comes with that. So Nicholas Davis says, could N beings have passed on advanced technology to the ancients? Absolutely. Since the beginning, since they were doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. Julian Handax, uh, 1.75 million years ago. Um, That's quite a while. I'm certain of it. And I mean, obviously those advances are going to come quicker when you're at locations where the geology is absolutely perfect, like the Great Rift Valley of Africa, like the area around the Kezem Cave, um, you know, Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, is on the edge of the Jordan uh, Valley. That's got a huge tectonic plate and, and you know, major fault going right the way down the, the, the Jordan Valley. Um, you know, Skinwalker Ranch. I mean, you know, all of these places are going to inspire um, they are going to allow the people at those locations to advance quicker than some of their neighbours who perhaps are not at such uh, energetic sites. I mean, you know, in the, in the United States, Sedona, I think, is a great example of such a location. I mean, not only have you got fault lines, but you've got incredible quartz rock there. You've got that incredible red um, I, th I think it's sandstone, pretty certain it is, you know, which is quite clearly uh, influenced, uh, affected by uh, iron in the rocks, iron really important as well to, to, to allow the flow of electrons. You know, you've got a perfect environment there, absolute perfect environment. And so, you know, th this, is, this is the most likely place where you're going to get the appearance of UFOs and to have transformative experiences that are going to affect you affect your life and again so many people that have close encounters with ufos go on to become incredibly artistic afterwards on creative you know become artists they become 
musicians, they become writers, become poets. They're inspired people. You know, I mean, sometimes this comes out a little messed up because it's almost like that creativity is almost like the the product of, um, of, of, of their brains being almost messed up by this event. But it's it's more than that. I think if it, if you do it right, that you know this is is this is how inspiration comes. And although that is in a dramatic manner, I think that it's happening on a lesser manner um, all the time. You know, and I think that the Kezem people are a prime example of that. Yeah. How they became the smartest people on the planet when a they were writing the book on shamanism, and two they were almost certainly having UFO encounters in the same way that we have them today. Well, it's like it's like there's the motor neuron stuff in the brain. It's like something was sparked and went down yeah, another, exactly. another pathway. Yeah, and of course you, you continue that contact through achieving altered states of consciousness using things like psychoactive plants, whatever. You know, I mean, the, I talked about the Averley abduction earlier and the family, the Day family, John yeah. and Sue Day. Both of them believed and probably still do to this day, that they still have a communication link with the intelligence that was responsible for their abduction. Still to this day. I have no doubt. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, John, even to this day, will say, I don't exactly know what it is, but it's there and it's there for me and it will give me information. And I mean, I, I was around his home on various occasions and stuff which has come into his head, new ideas, stuff to do with ion drives and stuff like this, you know, stuff which was sort of like futuristic technology. Which is, and, and, and do you think that we're the only people that know this? Of course, there are big techs all over the world that know that communication with these type of intelligences may well advance them beyond the limits of normal progression that you will get through just you know basic discoveries, right. and you know in other words just just running the course of of of, of, of you know research and development. They, they they have think tanks, think tanks where they will try and make communication with these intelligences, just like in many ways the sort of meditations that myself and, and Richard do on a Saturday night. You know right. we do them virtually every week. We sit down and. Things happen, you know. We, we commute, we, you know. We, we we go to somewhere in the world. It could be somewhere, you know, that we're working on, like Quebec Tepe or something, or somewhere else. And we will expect something to happen. We will expect communications to take place. We will expect information to come through, not just about the site and what was going on there, but also how this can benefit us in the future. In other words, we can receive information about let's say um you know quantum realities quantum entanglement uh, higher dimensions dark matter antimatter stuff like this information like that starts to come through as well it's almost like something knows that under such circumstances you could be fed that information the yeah. trigger has already happened and that connection continues so you can be fed that information it's a slow drip feed and that's been going on i think since at least 1.75 million years ago yeah yeah has to have been should we do one last question sure 
This is from uh, Viv Moshier. It said, our soul or spirit requested to be here for the upcoming event, just like all earth is being surrounded and watching. I think she probably means watch. What is Andrew's thought? Did we, are they? Uh, yeah, I don't quite understand it either. Okay. And uh, uh, look, okay, I, I think that this all comes down to, well, what's our role in this? I mean, and I don't just mean us in our physical bodies, our shells that we live in, but what, how does this affect our souls? How does it affect who we are before we incarnated or what happens to us, obviously, after the death? Well, clearly, I don't have answers about what happens to us after death. Uh, I ask anybody I think is an inspired person, I always ask, what do they think happens to us when we die? I, I do. I genuinely do that. I mean, you know, if I met the Dalai Lama, I'd asked him. Although, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's not just him. I asked my friends. I asked anybody that I think is inspired in some way. I like to get their view on things um, because, you know, one or all of them could be right in some manner. And I think that if we are right with these end beings now and that we are being guided and influenced by transdimensional beings, is that that continues on after we die and that that will guide what happens to us and what happens to our soul. And that it may well be that they can influence our next incarnation. And I'm saying this purely from a philo philosophical point of view. I have no idea what happens when we die. I think we've become one of them. But become an envy. Well, I think that that's possible. And I'll tell you for why. If you look back to the Rendlesham Forest case in 1980 and the so-called, um, you know, Rendlesham binary code that uh, Jim Penniston got, it suggests that it's coming from the future. Now, why? Why would it be coming from the future? And, and if that's the case, are we talking about entities from the future? And I think that that's probably a naive way of looking at it. I think it, we're talking about entities that know the future, that are the future. And know everything that's happening down here and are, again are slow dripping strip sorry slow drip feeding us information and they are suggesting here that you know there is a, a, a future where you know um, humanity will be able to uh, reach back in time to try to time travel to be able to convey messages like this and perhaps even to traveling vehicles of the sort that Jim Penniston and John Burrow saw inside Rendlesham Forest. Yeah. Is that the full answer? No, I don't think it is at all. I think that, that once again, this is just another layer of activity that is being relayed to us by end beings that is helpful for us to try and understand what's going on. But I truly feel that we're, we're, we're beginning to get to the, the bottom of what's going on and that we're beginning to understand where they come from, which is the bulk, um, who they are, which is transdimensional beings, and what they're doing here. And that's a slow drip feed of evolution for humanity. And that they are going to be there. They've always been there. They will remain there. But we have to start communicating with them in whatever way we can. 
But don't just assume that everything that they say is true. Please don't. You know, work with it. Right, right. Definitely work with it. But don't assume that everything that's coming through in messages, communication, psychic stuff is 100% accurate because these people will fool you. They are tricksters as well as they are masters of reality. You've got to figure that out. Well, well, Mr. Collins, Mr. Collins thank you for being so for us at the beginning. And um, thank you so much for everything. This has been magnificent. We need really another five or six hours. <laughs> well, we'll do another one sometime. That would be lovely. Meanwhile... Uh, Oh, right. Yeah, maybe I'll push the book, please. Yes, of course. Post, 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 um, post. We have three to give away, and we'll have to sort that out afterwards. Yeah, there it is. Okay. There it is. Oh, well, look, we got a I mean, obviously, um, you know, big respect to, to, to Greg as well, yes. my co-author. Um, Interesting how um, it all links in together, actually. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we both do each part. We, we you know, we, we, don't, we haven't just done a whole book of bits and pieces where we, we contribute. He does the first half, I do the second half. But by the time you, you you come to the latter half of my half, you'll see where the whole thing's sinking together. So that's that. But the only thing I'll say to everybody out there is, firstly, you can communicate with me through andrewcollins.com. There's an emailer on there. Just click that and you can communicate with me. Um, obviously, find me on social media. Uh, I'm on all of them, Instagram facebook and twitter um but beyond that on a more personal note is that just watch your dreams you know just watch your dreams over the next few days i mean you've listened to this tonight or some of you obviously early morning i should say or morning or afternoon so thank you for, for for watching this at whatever time you're watching it um it's just watch your dreams i mean who knows what might be triggered tonight when you go to bed um, you know, I mean, I'm quite happy to hear from anybody out there if things start going on, because if all I've said is true, you're all a part of the same thing here. We're all part of this bigger picture. So maybe this was all meant to be in the first place. I don't know. Let's just wait. I, no, I totally believe that. Totally, totally believe that. And I would totally love to do this again. We will. Especially when you're feeling a bit better. So, I'm fine. The, the Drambuie has been fine. Thank you. <laughs> I win. <laughs> thank you. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Leo, are no, you ready thank there? Thank you, everybody. And obviously, we're sorry that there was a slight delay at the beginning, obviously. Yeah. And that was because there was just so much interest in what we were doing that it essentially crashed the whole platform. So I, we a, almost crashed like live. To... Andrew, just so you know, we almost crashed live quite a few times. We had most of the admins got bumped and had to come back. I yeah, almost right. crashed the whole Well, that's show. good. Almost I, was I, good. I see that yeah. as a good sign, not a bad sign. Right, that's a good sign, right? So I apologize for the, I don't know what happened with the, in the right. beginning. There was a little bit of, you know, we came on a little bit late for those of you who, tuned in you can go back and watch from the beginning people kept asking that can i watch this from the beginning yes as soon as we're done oh. you can rewind and watch and from I'll the beginning send it That's to all you as well and i'll send it to i can't pronounce her name the publisher um okay. so the other yeah. question i was having and it's gone now oh well it was obviously not interesting enough so um we have competition with the three books so yeah. I'll pull that afterwards. I've also done an ad with all of your links that I'll put underneath all of this live stuff again yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, but um, andrewcollins.com is where you'll find oh, it. Oh, sorry. Can I push something? Yes. Uh, obviously, if people want to see me live, um, I'm at the Awakening uh, event in June, June 24th to 26th at Blackpool in the UK. Uh, you've got Eric Von Daniken there who, let's point out, wrote the wrote the forward he wrote the forward to this book which i find incredible because obviously the book's called origins of the gods his right. book have always been of the gods so you know that continuity i love i think that's brilliant because he was the guy that brought the whole idea of ancient astronauts to the you know the public domain and made people question the past in a way which nobody else had done before in 1968 i think um Chariots of Gods. I mean, I read it in the mid seventies. Now, so I I think that's brilliant, and he will be there at this event. I mean, send me the the info on that, and I'll add that to the rest of it. That's called Awakening. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll also see it online as the Chariots of the Gods Expo. And Giorgio from Ancient Aliens will be there as well. He's obviously one of the other main speakers. I'm one of the main speakers, and various other of my colleagues. You know that from this field are there as well and that's blackpool and that's june the 24th to 26th but oh, if you're in the united states i will be there in september i'm doing a big event with gaia tv um at, in boulder colorado if you just happen to be in the area uh, i'd love to see you then and hopefully next year things will open up even more and you know i'll go further afield so excellent thank you so much and uh, we will we'll see you next time. Okay, Leo, are you ready? Yeah, I'm you here. <laughs> Sorry. All right. I have to pop back in and turn on my microphone to, to for you to hear me. I apologize. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. I'll see you in a minute. All right, Leo, you can unlive. Okay. <clears throat>